0: Okay, welcome back to the second half of our program on wrongful convictions. Um, I don't want to make anybody feel guilty, but uh, most of you left without an evaluation form last time, and um, this time I beseech you to fill out a form if you would. Feel free to comment on last week's session also. The form was with, uh, they were downstairs when you checked in. If you didn't get one, I'll be happy to get one for you. Uh, And so that's, I'll turn it back over to Judge Giles.
1: Thank you. Well, I'm assuming I'm welcoming um, you all back here. If you're a newcomer, welcome. I'm going to make very, very brief comments this time uh, for a couple of reasons, because you all know that this is the second half of our two-week program. Last week, our program was entitled Writing Wrongs, and we got to listen to some pretty... Uh, amazing stories from practitioners and the uh, life experiences uh, that they have gone through and the lessons that they've learned about writing wrongful convictions. And this week, we're going to be looking prospectively. We're going to be looking at how to prevent wrongful convictions. And we have another wonderful lineup for your consideration. Um, First, we're going to hear from Colette Tivitt, who is a criminal defense attorney uh, from Seattle, come in here just to talk to us, sort of, but um, we know that she is um, actually flying back uh, this evening, so we're going to get her on and off the stage as soon as we can. Um, but she's with the Seattle firm of Schroeder, Gol- Goldmark, and Bender, um, and with her presenting a program on eyewitness identifications and false confessions, one of the, um, certainly the uh, uh, main causes of wrongful convictions is Mark Lee with the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office, I think recently elevated to first assistant?
2: Uh, deputy, chief of the homicide.
1: deputy Chief of the Homicide Unit. I think that's even better. Um, and I've had um, um, Mark in front of me several times, and a wonderful attorney he is. Um, followed by um, that, we're going to be talking about ineffective assistance to counsel and forensic evidence. Again, a um, fruitful source of and cause of wrongful convictions, and we're going to be hearing from Mike Fabry from the Middlesex County District Attorney's Office and Charlie Rankin, who I know was here last week, and I'm sure he is on his way, a well-known criminal defense attorney and partner in Rankin and Sullivan. And then following all that, we are going to be talking about a very controversial subject, Um, confidential informants I know you all use most of you use the S word I won't because I'm a judge Um, confidential informants and we're going to be hearing from Julianne Bolero another wonderful there's Charlie Rankin (laughs) there he is we'll call him down he can be comfortable for a while and we're going to call him down in a bit Um, uh, Julianne Bolero from Wolf Block uh, uh, another highly experienced criminal defense attorney and uh, Mary Jo Harris a partner at um, Morgan, Brown & Joy, but formerly the legal advisor to the Boston Police Department and talking about police procedures in this regard. And finally, um, Ted Heinrich, who is an assistant U.S. attorney here in Boston. All very, very experienced practitioners in this matter. So um, without any further ado, and because she's got to get on a jet plane, I turn it over to Colette Tivitt. Thank
3: you. Hi. Um, Mark and I, are, we have uh, basically 50 minutes to tell you everything we know from the defense perspective and the prosecution about preventing wrongful convictions and confession and eyewitness identification cases. And I say that with somewhat of a laugh because it's probably a, a seminar that could be done in three or four or five days. So we're just going to give you very, very brief highlights. Um, I feel like I'm a bit of an expert on confessions because I had the joy of practicing at CPCS in Lowell, Massachusetts for about 13 years. And I'm not saying anything bad about the Lowell Police Department, but I would share with you that there's about a 97 percent conviction rate. I also share with you that in the first 10 years of my practice in Lowell, I lost about 97 percent of my motions to suppress in confession cases. And I found myself standing before judges and pleading out clients, or standing in front of juries and trying to explain to juries that even innocent men and women confessed to crimes they didn't commit. And shocking, I was losing these cases over and over and over. And I had the wonderful fortune of being at an uh, MCLE program probably in 1999, 2000, and Saul Kasson, who was an eyewitness identification expert was, was being the, the speaker for a CLE on false confession cases. So one of the areas that we've been asked to speak with from both the defense perspective as well as the prosecution is how do you use experts or how do you educate either from a defense perspective starting with the prosecutor, the judge in a suppression motion and then ultimately a jury in confession cases. Should you use experts? How do you start the education process? If you use an expert, should you use them at a motion to suppress or should you use them at trial or at both? The three, I, uh, the three confession uh, experts that we've been using a lot in Massachusetts or we've heard about are Saul Kassin, who I said again is a, an eyewitness identification expert as well as a confession expert. Richard Offshe, and some of you, and I'm sure Mark will tell you a little bit about his experience, and Stephanie Page as well, I know, has used him as in trials here in Massachusetts, and Richard Leo, who's another social scientist and expert in the area of false confessions. The problem that we have as, a, as defense lawyers is, you know, how, how believable, or how do, you, how do you start the education process with a judge if you're doing a motion to suppress? The social science behind false confessions is pretty complicated. There's a lot of stuff out there, but once you read through some of the articles that uh, Saul Kassin has written, Richard Leo, Richard offshe um, you find out that you're seeing the same scenarios repeated over and over again. In the, I think it was in 1933 in Brown versus Mississippi, our Supreme Court of the United States outlawed the use of physical torture to get confessions. And that's a case where three African-American males were tied to a tree and whipped until they confessed. And our Supreme Court said, no, we are better than that. We can't do that. Police say, now what? Can't beat these dudes? How are we going to get the confessions? So then into that vacuum walks Inbal and Reed, a, a law school professor and a Chicago police officer. And they have created what's called the Reed Technique for psychological interrogation techniques that are taught to law enforcement. The Reed Technique has been used since the mid-40s. It was talked about in the Miranda decision in 1966. And the court in Miranda said, even though we've outlawed torture, what we're seeing is the use of psychological techniques, such as the Reed Technique, and that is also equally coercive. And we have to ensure that our suspects are not being subjected to such techniques that will generate false confessions. When I heard Saul Kasson speaking in 1999-2000 about Reed, I had no idea what the hell he was talking about. And so I looked it up on the internet and I went to the Reed technique course in Colorado and I sat there for three days with officers from the Glenwood Springs Police Force, 50 police officers, and me, like a little mole in this little thing, not, you know, (laughs) exposing myself as a CPCS lawyer or a a law school professor from Suffolk. And I was shocked to hear what I was listening to from these officers about the techniques they were using. And I was hearing the same things that my clients in Lowell would be telling me over and over about how they were being interrogated by these officers, how there was these implicit, not explicit promises, where false confession, false evidence is being presented, where they were told that they had, they had failed voice stress analysis tests, um, if they only confessed to the fact that they were pushed to this because of things that were outside of their control. Um, you know, they were working hard. Um, they normally wouldn't have done, committed this crime, but they were pressured into it. They were drunk, they were tired, giving them moral justification, and implicitly saying to them, if you confess, good things will happen. And, you know, so how do you, how do you convince a, a judge in a suppression hearing that, although my client sat there for six hours, he gave a confession, it's not a voluntary confession. And that's where, as a defense lawyer, I have been using experts to help educate both judges and then ultimately maybe a jury. Before I turn it over to Mark, there's there's just two other things I will say. If you're going to use an expert in the area of false confessions, be very careful about who you choose. Make sure you read every single thing that they've published. Get their curriculum vitae, read it, because someone like Mark Lee will cross-examine your expert and say things, you know, which Mark will share with you of what he was prepared to ask off sheet, that might not be so helpful for, to your defense. So make sure that they're bulletproof if you use them and to make the decision whether or not you're going to use them to try to sway the judge in a suppression hearing or whether or not you're going to educate the jury um, at, at trial. The greatest case that came down in, in this jurisdiction in uh, 2006, 4? 4. 4. four. D. D. Baptiste. 2004, and I had, you know, again, I, August, yeah, and Judge Sossman, it is, I think it's a great uh, opinion, even though it didn't go far enough, I think, to mandate electronic recordation. Read the decision. Everything that you want to know about the voluntariness of confession, the use of psychological interrogation techniques by law enforcement, you can, if you're on Lexis, you can just, it will click you to the links to the social science articles. And it really talks about all of the things that are subtly being done to our clients that may lead to false confessions. And I think that it's, it's really instrumental both to, to, to educate the judges and then when you're at jury trial requesting a DJM Baptiste instruction. And I gave a, an, ex, a, a, an example of one that Saul Kasson helped draft. And I don't know if it was for Stephanie, one of your cases, but I know that it was distributed on the CPCS Um, website and and into into interoffice and it really makes you think about even if the confession is coming in but it wasn't recorded these are some of the things that we could be asking and talking to our juries about so that's just kind of a very quick overview about some of the the issues that we have with experts from a defense perspective but I'm going to turn it over to Mark to talk about how he prepares um, in these cases with experts Um.
2: First of all, thank you, Carol, for uh, having me uh, uh, today. Uh, it wasn't very long ago uh, that uh, when you had a case where a statement was made by a defendant in a case, or for that matter, an eyewitness identification made by a witness in a case where it was, generally speaking, not questioned at all. Uh, the witness says, well, Joe Jones or that person right there was the one that did it, and. Uh, uh, there was no real, no real need or no perceived need to question that person's accuracy, truthfulness, uh, or credibility. And much in the same way, uh, you often hear even today, uh, well, the person confessed, as if that's supposed to carry some kind of uh, added, uh, some great weight that it's dispositive without without, uh, without having any uh, uh, examination into, into the validity of the confession. I think... From, from a prosecutor standpoint, I think the most important thing to do is to accept the fact that uh, that day and age uh, can't really exist now in terms of your assessment, your preparation for your cases. The fact is that people do make mistakes and misidentify people. The fact is that certain people do falsely confess to crimes that they didn't commit. Uh, now, uh, unfortunately, there are no statistics. I'm going to give you two uh, statements uh uh, one is that most people who confess are guilty. The second one is less than 1% of people uh, who... who uh, there are, of the total number of confessions given, less than 1% are false. Those are statistics that were actually given by Dr. Richard Offshie in a voir here, hearing. That's a defense expert that said that. Uh, the thing is that no one really knows what percentage of uh, total number of confessions are true or false. Uh, and. Uh, the, the, the key at least in my view at looking at a confession case is recognizing a couple things that uh, they they do happen uh, we know that they happen uh, but the, the the key is to sort of uh, I go through a checklist when I have a statement case of how I want to view the case how I want to look at the confession and things that I want to examine before I even get to the point of saying that this defendant is responsible for this particular crime and uh, Without question, the very, very first thing that I look at in a statement case is whether the confession led to the arrest or whether the arrest produced a confession. And to me, that's a huge, huge distinction. If you read the literature that Saul Kasson has written, that Dr. Richard Offshe has written, all the case studies, uh, I don't think there's a single case they studied in which the confession did not lead immediately to the arrest. And you can imagine in a lot of these cases, there's a tremendous amount of publicity surrounding some of these big cases. There's a crime committed, there are no witnesses, all of a sudden there's this demand for someone needs to be arrested, somebody needs to be held responsible, and the next thing you know, this poor guy is paraded into the police station, and 14 hours later... There's a confession, and then the arrest. I think when you have a case like that, you owe it to yourself and, and, and the whole system to be very, very, very uh, careful about scrutinizing the circumstances under which that confession took place. Um, and I go through, like I said, a, a, a checklist of things uh, that, I, that I go through in my mind uh, one of the things is, I, um, particularly in cases like that, is how did the subject become the target of the police investigation? Uh, was it an anonymous source? Was it rumor in the street? Was it somebody who came to the police and actually used a name and got the police onto a particular um, uh, individual? Was it a police theory that sort of germinated from the size of a small seed and then all of a sudden turned into a full-blown uh, uh, theory of the case without much supporting evidence for it. So very oftentimes, uh, well, not very oftentimes. The first, one of the first things I do is, is I want to find out how did this person become an individual of interest to the police. I also want to know, <clears throat> ultimately, if a confession or a statement is given, uh, what were the dynamics of the questioning and answering? Uh, was <clears throat> was the uh, did did the detective? Uh, say to the individual, um, soup to nuts, you tell me exactly what happened? Or did the detective use what he or she knew about the crime scene and engage in a dialogue uh, with the individual? Uh, oftentimes, uh, I mean, it's not just the read technique, it makes perfect sense that if somebody is making a statement and making admissions to a crime, that the credibility of that statement goes up when that individual is able to tell you certain aspects of the crime scene, uh, certain details that the general public may not know. Uh, The Reed techniques, uh, those who criticize the Reed technique will say that that's what they're trying to extract. But I think if you just look at it from a common sense standpoint, it makes sense that if a person is able to tell you uh, details about a crime scene that the public doesn't know, uh, there has to be some explanation for how that individual became Uh, Or obtain that knowledge. Now, the means, the the, the manner in which that information came to the police is important. For instance, did the police during the questioning uh, let let the person in on certain facts, and did that person subsequently adopt those facts as his own? So it's very important to know how the Q and A took place. That's why DGM Batista is such a, I think, such an invaluable. decision because there is a complete record of what happened. You don't have to characterize or spin uh, in your advocacy exactly what happened in that room. It's, it's there for all to hear. Uh, I think there, there's always going to be room for someone to say, well, they say they recorded everything, but they didn't record everything. Um, and that's, But unfortunately, there's really nothing you can do about that. If, if, if that. if that allegation is made, then it really is a credibility determination for the finder of fact to make. Uh, in addition to the, to the dynamics of the questioning and answering, the other thing I also look to uh, uh, is, again, this is uh, both pre-DG uh, and Batista and now, is it, were there any unrecorded portions of the statement? Um, uh, obviously, unrecorded portions of the statement uh, from a uh, practical standpoint, uh, raise issues because you just really don't know what happened. Uh, and uh, uh, It's very hard to make uh, a meaningful, intelligent assessment uh, based upon that, particularly when you have two versions of what took place that are diametrically opposed. Very often times you'll hear the defendant's version saying X, Y, and Z happened, the Texas version of it uh Uh, that A, B, and C happen. And when they are 180 degrees apart, that's a major problem. Uh, That's a huge problem, and it should make you stop. It should make you question what's going on, and it should make you ask some of these difficult questions. Um, Some of the most tense moments I've had during the time I've been a prosecutor have been moments when I've sat down with a detective, I've been hung up on, I've been cussed at, um, I've been called names, um, and uh, these are all things that uh, sort of come with the territory, but I think you, they're things that you have to be willing to do. You have to be willing to, to uh, uh, call them to the mat, make them do their jobs just like you would want somebody to do that for you. Um, one of the things I want to look at are the circumstances under which the statement were t- was taken. Was it, at, was it at the subject's home? Was it at the police station? Was he handcuffed? Uh, was it 2 o'clock in the morning versus 1 o'clock in the afternoon? Uh, what what sort of uh, arrangements or accommodations were made for the person to use the bathroom, get drinks of water, things of that nature? Those are all uh, factors that can end up being very coercive to somebody who's uh, who's very tired, perhaps a young, unsophisticated. Uh, they all, in and of themselves, may not be overly significant, but when you pile them on, it uh, c- can be highly significant. Um, And then finally, and I think this is really what really what it boils down to for me is, uh, was what the person said consistent with all known objective evidence in the case? That is, did the person make a statement that's consistent with the evidence? uh, That uh, 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 you know, one of the one of the uh, litmus tests, uh, one of the things that you can use use as a litmus test is, for instance, if the person makes a statement and leads the police to a piece of evidence that nobody knows about. That is, to me, a very, very significant piece of information. Uh, because if the police didn't know about the evidence, then uh, you could hardly blame them for for tainting uh, the statement. Uh, so that's something I look for. I look to see how um, closely what the defendant states what happened uh, fits the known evidence in the case. Now, this is... This is also somewhat problematic for this reason. A defendant or, or a suspect in a case who makes an admission or a confession to certain things in many ways is not in a whole lot of different position than a witness who makes a statement about what happened on the street. Uh, while I think it's very important that you hold that person to the details, just like every witness might not be able to remember every single detail of a crime that they witness on the street, a suspect may not remember every single detail about a crime he or she committed, for instance, in a home. okay? If the, if the, if the suspect says, I think it was three bedrooms, maybe four, I don't know, and it turns out that it was two bedrooms, does that necessarily mean that the statement he's giving is a false confession? When you don't know. I think you have to apply common sense. What kinds of things would this person be take paying attention to in the midst of committing a crime? So, while I think it's important to make sure you corroborate what the defendant says with the known evidence, I think holding to holding somebody to uh, too high a standard can also backfire on you. Uh, it, it is an extremely difficult exercise um, to engage in, at least in my view, uh, because uh, you you. It's hard to remove yourself as the person who's investigating the case. Do you, do you, do you excuse it? Do you gloss over it? Or do you hold to a standard that in the end might not be fair? So in any confession case, I think the first thing that everyone has to think about from the Commonwealth or the government's perspective is that you cannot ignore as junk science the notion that somebody may have falsely confessed. That being said, I think that a confession case... Is only is as good is only as good as the investigation that surrounds it. One of the things that I look forward look to, look towards in a confession case is the natural tendency when the statement is made to then give up on the investigation. Ah, oh, we got the confession. We don't need to do anything else. And that is is eventually going to one backfire at trial, and two, it is going to increase the likelihood. Uh, that the person, if the person was falsely confessing, that you're not going to pick it up. So, uh, you know, we're we're here about being better lawyers, but we're also here about uh, doing things the right way. Uh, and uh, some of these questions that you have to ask about these cases are tough questions and maybe not so easy to ask, but they must be done. And I think one of the uh, like as I said before, the most important thing is to recognize that this does happen. Um, and that's sort of the way I, I, I view these types of cases. And in terms of the experts, um, uh, again, Uh, the the admonition that this is not junk science is important. I I read everything that the person's written, um, primarily because I find it pretty interesting, but I think you can't cross-examine someone intelligently unless you understand what it is they're trying to say. A lot of times I see lawyers cross-examining defense experts, um, but they don't even really know what the defense expert is actually trying to communicate. I mean, I try to write down on a piece of paper before I walk into the courtroom one, two, three. This is what the defense expert wants to communicate either to the jury or to the judge. And I try to write it in one sentence, 25 words or less. This is his thesis statement. This is what he's saying. And then I look at that and I, and I ask myself, well, geez, do I agree with that or do I disagree with that? If it's something that I agree with, then, uh, then the issue really becomes, if you're talking about a voir dire situation, whether it's ultimately admissible. But I think you, you need to be able to divorce yourself from the idea that, that, that this stuff is junk science.
3: So this is what's called wrongful convictions, and how can we prevent them? Um, how many of you are defense lawyers in the audience? Um, well, this isn't just to you, but you know, we want to avoid cases where our clients are actually innocent and they, they give false confessions. But as a defense lawyer, we have to be also cognizant that, that we have to always be looking at voluntariness of the confession. Even if the client so-called did it, you could still get the statement suppressed if the police did something that was wrong or unlawful. And that's why I think that D.J. and Baptiste's decision, again, gives us a, it's a nice instruction about how things are done and what the judges should be looking at. When I use the example of Lowell, Massachusetts, we were seeing the same scenario being played out over and over with the police and our, our suspects. The clients would be arrested around 8 o'clock at night. They'd be taken to the police station. They'd be held in the, the, the bowels of the Lowell police station. They'd be brought up to the interrogation room at around 2 o'clock in the morning. There would be what they would they termed in Lowell the free-flowing informational gathering session, which was something that was done all the time, but certainly before a tape recorded, a recorder would be turned on. And in this free-flowing informational gathering session, they would use tactics of you know, presentation of false evidence. We know you did it. We have you on videotape, and we have the videotape right here. And in that videotape, it would be like, you know, uh, the Red Sox versus the Yankees, like just shoved backwards in a folder. Um, we know you did it because we spoke to all of your colleagues from the, you know, the TRGs, and they told us that you did it. We know you did it because your footprints were found at the scene. We know you did it because, you know, they over all different things, the DNA, we tested <coughs> you. When you walked in, there was some infrared, you know, light that shined off your your sweatshirt. (coughs) Client would deny doing it. Um, They would give a statement. The statement would be ripped up. Another police officer would come in. Another statement would be given. But what I started to find out that police were also doing this during this uh, gathering session was that they were giving information about the crime scene. So they would say things like, we found this gun that was a 38 caliber, and it was underneath the seat of this Toyota Camry that you were seen in. We found, you know, they would, give, they would be giving details about the crime. And unless we knew the right questions to ask, that information isn't always apparent because it's not contained within the police statement itself. And then it would be, ironically, sometime around 7.30 in the morning, where a tape recorder would be brought out, and after three hours of this gathering session, that's when the tape recorder would be pressed, the Miranda rights would be read, and the statement of the client would be on that that tape. So, so how do we, you know, so what do you do with that information? As a defense lawyer, regardless if it's a false confession or an involuntary confession, the first thing I try to do from the client is do a very, very intense, serious interview about. Walk me through everything that happened from the time that you were arrested until the time that you gave your last statement on that tape recorder. Describe the room to me. How many police officers were there? What was their tone of voice? Were they yelling? Were they soft? When did they tell you that you can have a Santora sub sandwich? Um, were you told that you could have a cigarette? When, were, you know, Around what time was that said to you? Really walk them through it. How were you feeling when they said these things? Try to like tap into their fears or this isolation. All of those things are relevant because when you use an expert, they can testify as to how those things could be psychologically coercive. The other thing that I think is very important when we're looking at these false confession or involuntary confession cases is do you represent a, a client that has a particular vulnerability that they would be more susceptible to these types of interrogation practices. Um, There's a large percentage of our clients or inmates in the system that are mildly or mentally retarded that because of their economic um, area, they were not tested before the age of 18. They were not in special ed classes, so they really were never deemed to be mentally retarded, but you may want an expert to do some testing on them. I had a client that had Asperger's Syndrome, which is adult um, autism. The way that he was reacting during this uh, interrogation, not making eye contact, withdrawn body posture, looking down, rocking back and forth, were the things that the officer as an experienced (coughs) um, certified read examiner, he deemed them to be signs of deception. When, in essence, when we called our expert, who was a forensic psychologist, our expert said, no, those are the DSM-IV exact you know, symptoms that one would have with Asperger's syndrome. So it's just checking off and trying to negate what the judge or the jury could be deeming to be um, evidence of guilt would actually be evidence of innocence. So I think that the timeline and and the uh, interview with our client is really critical in order to educate the judge and then ultimately the jury whether or not this is a voluntary confession. It's very hard to argue in front of a jury that it is a false confession case because your client wasn't beaten, he wasn't whipped, he's got nothing to show for it or she doesn't, but sometimes it's the implicit promises. Listen, you seem like a good person, but you could really benefit as in DJ and Baptiste, from psychological counseling or drug counseling or something else, which is, in, in essence, implying that if you confess, you're not looking at jail. You're looking at some kind of special treatment, and then you'll be released. Um, that scenario was played out in, in Suffolk County in cases I had here. Um, when Stephanie had the, the, uh, the dominatrix case, um, I read the pleadings that Stephanie did in that case, and she used um, Richard Offshe there. It's you're looking about the hours that this dominatrix—I'd love to just say that—was uh, questioned by the police. Um, you know, w- you know what they said to her. The, you know what the subtle uh, feelings of, you know that that you, you you couldn't escape this and you had to confess was. Stephanie filed a a a, a, a bible, man, of all different things about you know trying to educate the judge about how this could possibly happen. And that's what, you know, that's going to be the challenge is that give judges um, social science articles, help them understand this, give them the testimony so that even if you lose the motion to suppress, then your you know, the rulings at trial may be much more beneficial. It's the same thing in eyewitness cases as in confession cases. We have to be the educators. Um, the last thing that I, I wanted to mention, and Mark and I talked about this before, is that as you get more experienced in some of these cases, where you're representing clients that are charged with very serious crimes, homicides, serious rape cases, what do you do when you have the case where the, uh, the scientific evidence is not there, it's not the silver bullet, we don't have the DNA, we have a confession, but there really is no cooperation, one of the hardest words in the English language to pronounce for me. But, um, what do you do in that situation? Well, you think that that gets thrown out. Well, Stephanie can tell you that even in a case where there's no dead body and there's nothing, that sometimes the judges aren't swayed by that argument. But you have to look at that. So if I have a case where I believe that I have a client that is either the police did something horribly wrong or my client is actually innocent and we can show all of the things that were done incorrectly... Maybe it's the time where you sit down and I I say, like, I'll show you yours if you show me mine. You know, show your cards a little bit and say, listen, you know, we have a working relationship. I'm not a bullshit artist. You know that, you know, I'm not, you know, this is what we've done in our investigation. This is what the client's story is. Maybe you could sit down with your opposition and say, I think you have the wrong guy. It takes a lot of guts. It's a very scary thing. You don't do it in every case. I wear a Buddha around my neck, I I rub my Buddha, I I sign the cross, I do whatever I need, salt off of the shoulder, and then sometimes I will say to the prosecutor, you know, please don't screw me, but I want to talk to you, let us have this meaningful conversation because I truly think you have the wrong man. I now practice in a state where we have pretrial deposition. So they are witnessing some of their deficits in their investigation. But here in Massachusetts, I have been able to sit down. And I think Mark could share stories where that has happened as well. He may not dismiss the case, but it's worth giving it a shot. And I've had success in the last couple months in Seattle. We're sitting down in murder cases. I had two cases that were dismissed pre-trial. Because of the work done with the prosecutors and the detectives, let's sit down and, and talk about what we see are the problems, and then maybe you can share lights. I don't think prosecutors want to convict or see convictions for innocent people, so that's just my two cents on, you know, sometimes taking that, de- you know, big breath and then jumping in.
1: Well, are you nice to say? Because I'm going to ask if anybody has questions for Collette, because she's going to get. Um, We're just going to deviate just slightly from the schedule. Colette literally has to get out of here in five minutes. A taxi's waiting for her outside. So um, I wanted to take advantage of her vast skill and experience. Does anybody have any questions of Colette? Um, Mark's going to be here um, so we can ask him questions. And I have to do my Oprah Winfrey thing because this is all being recorded, and I love doing this, by the way. (laughs) Are you kidding? With judges spread, this is the only exercise I get. <laughs> oh no!
4: Oh, sorry. That's okay. Um, everybody's kind of skirting around, and 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 maybe I'm going to open the china closet and ask the bull to come out. What do we do when we have situations where the credibility and the prior practices of the uh, police officers involved need to be addressed?
3: You know, I, I think it, it, it's. It's, you, have the same, you have the same officers that are doing the same thing. What, from a defense perspective, I think it's sharing information. If you have, you know, getting, you know saying I have a motion to suppress with uh, Detective John um, coming up in two weeks, do you, anyone have any experience or transcripts of, of, of things that they've done? What happened in Lowell is that you were literally seeing the same type of um, typewritten statements over and over and over to the point of I'm here with Detective Phil, he's my favorite officer. He gave me Santora's sub, and I want to tell him what happened. And then you'd hear the same stories from the client. So that's the kind of thing where it's educating the judge and really kind of opening, you have to open that Pandora's box because there are injustices that are being done. I mean, this stuff in DJ and Baptiste has been happening for many, many years. So you start talking to the judge about, I am gonna Judge Chernoff, who is one of the best judges that is sitting in this state said to me years ago, what what is read and how do you spell that? And then, you know, giving a copy of my book to the judge, maybe not winning that motion, but those small incremental steps that this is what the procedure is that is being done over and over. False evidence. For years, our Supreme Judicial Court said, that's okay that they, they make up stuff. That's not unlawful. Well, in D.G. and Baptiste, the court said, we have a little bit of a problem with that, using trickery. And false evidence, so I guess you know, yes, Stephanie and other people who have used these things it 's really just getting the word, that word out there that these are the dirty cops, and this is what, it's, it, what this is what 's happening over and over
1: anybody else I have a quick question before you run out the door sure I, I, I just i 've been ruminating and i 'm a paid ruminator. Yeah. Why is it that defense counsel don 't permit their clients to testify more often at a suppression hearing? I think the case is Simmons, which says that you can't use what he or she says at trial. Of course, you can use it to impeach if he or she says something at variance at trial. But it it has struck me why I rarely see this. I I started my career as a criminal defense attorney. Now I have to wear my neutral hat. These are credibility um, assessments. I'm presented with a cop who says, I did everything by the book. And I, I... Correct me if I'm wrong, um, Barbara Lank of this Appeals Court. I can't use your affidavit. You've got to take the stand if you want that to be in evidence. Why don't more defense attorneys call their clients? Anybody?
3: It, it's scary, and uh, maybe I'll turn that over to Stephanie. But uh, as I'm leaving, that the, the uh,
1: Stephanie, you want to field that? You're the you're the trainer. I'm not,
3: but, um, I mean, there's
5: so many experienced there's so many experienced lawyers here, but we all well one is a cynicism that a judge is never going to believe a defendant. No offense to the neutrality on the bench.
6: Um,
5: two is, uh, I mean, but but it's, it's something to revisit because if it's a case where you're pretty sure your client is never going to testify, you probably don't have anything to lose. But then it's also a decision about the demeanor and, and whether or not the client can. Um, it's 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 a lot of pressure to take the stand and, and to be coherent and um, well, it's it's just, it's just a difficult situation. I mean. I've never done it, but. And I've always wanted to keep my options open about whether or not my client's going to testify at trial. I mean, Randy, Randy, I mean, we're all here. What do you think?
7: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I think uh, I, I agree with Stephanie, but uh, I hear what you're saying, Judge Giles, and uh, I had an experience that I remember um, about four years ago where we had a. Uh, motion to suppress in a homicide case and um, the detectives were known um, to be uh, to have some problems and uh, it was a question of whether or not they had coerced uh, the statement and both, uh, it was two defendants and we both put our clients on the stand and um, I know the co-defendant's client when he started to uh, testify i felt like you know there's no doubt that he's telling the truth because of the way he was testifying and just the way he was it was clear and uh, the judge's decision basically didn't even mention uh the testimony of the defendants she just that judge just accepted uh everything the cops said uh 100 so i think that's part of the reason that you feel that uh, why should i risk putting my client on the stand when uh The judges are just basically, uh, for the most part, I mean, you can't say of every judge, but uh, they just are believing the police. uh, And it's very difficult to put your client up on the stand uh, to test his credibility or her credibility against the police. And, like, I I thought, I think that now I'm hoping that judges, and I think what's happening in homicide cases, what I've been seeing is that the police are beginning to... uh, Tape record their uh, interrogations right from the very beginning. This is Detective Joya. This interrogation, this is being taped, and I think that would go a long way uh, towards making it uh, fair for sure. It's any-
5: a, a good point. It's something to consider.
1: Anybody else want to weigh in on that? I just, I, I personally can remember. Uh, next month I'll be a judge. Seventeen years, and I can remember um, vividly people. Defendants who have taken the stand and impressed me—I can't guarantee I'm always going to believe your client, obviously—but I, I, I think I'm fairly good at assessing credibility. And when I get somebody who takes the stand and says, "Judge, that's not what happened," and I, you know, and they present well, I will believe that person. I really, I really will. Um, so I think you might consider that. You have seem to have a very little faith in trial judges, um, and I'm not sure that you'll all have that much to risk by playing it that close to the vest sometimes. Chris?
4: Um, just briefly, I understand Judge Laureate is commenting on the same issue and saying that he feels really stuck a lot because he's got the the cop on one hand and that's about it, and he's very interested in hearing from um, from defendants. I had a motion to suppress um, ID in a drug case once where I had no choice but to put my client on to talk about the I.D. procedure out on the street, and he was a great kid, and he was articulate and gentle, and he had to admit he'd made the undercover sale, and um, Judge Rouse fell off the bench when he admitted the crime, and that included that in her findings, so take your deal. It is a risk.
1: Obviously, we're talking about wrongful convictions here. I'm just... (laughs) But, I'm, I, but I'm, seriously, I mean, if you're, if you're really dealing with you, what you think is a false confession, I just put it out to you to consider that maybe the defense bar should consider loosening up on that um, hard and fast rule. I never put my client on. If you, if you want to prevent a wrongful conviction, I've got to assess that person's credibility. That he was, you know, psychological pressure was, bar, you know, brought to bear. He couldn't have his cigarettes, and he's a, you know, um, a heavy smoker. Whatever it may be, I can't use your affidavit. I, I can't. I have to assess his credibility on the stand. So, but, but you raised the
4: well,
7: most important point I got to do, do my problem. Oprah.
4: This is being recorded. But,
7: but, but
4: you raised the most important point when you said he has to present well. A lot of the people we're dealing with, I mean, I only deal with homicide appeals. That's all I deal with. And I, and I can't tell you the people that at least 95% of my clients are either drug addicted, alcohol addicted, or borderline intelligence. They are not people who would stand up well and would not present well if they had to testify at a hearing, especially when cross-examined by a, you know, a competent, experienced DA. They just couldn't handle it.
1: I just one last comment. I mean, call me naive, but regard, I, I don't necessarily need high levels of intelligence to see credibility. Um, I, I think credibility shines through that, um, in my personal opinion. But Mark, I think, had more to say.
2: Well, I mean, I, I, what, I, what I seem to hear a little bit of is uh, uh, discussion surrounding tactical decisions uh, to make. I mean, I think ultimately if the issue is trying to prevent erroneous convictions – This has got to be a marriage between the defense bar and the prosecution. So the prosecution uh, investigates and tries these cases responsibly. That is, uh, in a confession case, making sure that the statement, uh, just uh, because it's an admission of the crime, is not good enough. It's to to dig around to figure out, uh, look, I mean, I I accept Dr. Offshe's statement that the vast majority of people who confess are guilty. I also happen to believe that people do confess falsely. I think it's it's knowing that it happens that is the first crucial step for the government. It happens. This stuff happens. And if you uh, proceed uh, uh, with your case thinking that it doesn't happen, it is going to affect... And dictate and guide how you handle the case. So I think that I think that's a crucial uh, acknowledgement to make.
5: Mark, I believe you. Chris, that that you believe that. Uh, but then, why would you object to having the jury educated by an expert about the the, uh, the science of false confessions?
2: I don't uh, object. I I. I object to certain things that the expert is going to say, and that's why I said uh, I write down sort of on a piece of paper what I understand the expert to want to testify to. Uh, uh, In the two cases where I had Dr. Offsheet as a uh, defense expert, um, I noted during the voir dire that um, his, his seminal study in this examined 60 criminal cases. In every single one of those criminal cases, the confession led to the arrest. In every single one of those criminal cases, the interrogation lasted at a minimum of six hours, the maximum up to 19 or 20 hours. In every single one of those cases, there was not a single eyewitness to the crime. It was either some form of a rape murder, um, a kidnap murder, clearly a situation in which an individual was either abducted or taken to a very private place, and either uh, raped and then subsequently killed. They were cases in which the individual who made the confession uh, 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 made statements to the police that were at almost entirely at variance with the physical scene. Uh, there was no absolutely no corroborating evidence. So this was his body of work. What he was going to purport to testify to, at least as I understand it, uh, was that these are the common themes that you find with false confessions. In the case that I was trying, where Dr. Off she was offered as a witness, not a single common thread was found between the case facts that we had and the cases that he wanted to testify about. My feeling then was, coupled with his own statement, that police interrogation techniques... Just as frequently produce truthful confessions as they do false confessions. My argument to Judge Laureate was, he's actually not educating the jury in this particular set of facts about anything. He's not. He's he's not telling us anything uh, that I feel the jury doesn't already know. His 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 body of work concerns cases that factually are not not anywhere close to the facts that you have in the present case. And um, his 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 other thesis statement that. Whatever these techniques that are being employed, they often, they, they just as frequently, if not more often, result in truthful confessions as they do false confessions, and I'm unable to tell when that
5: happens. But you're not the jury. Why doesn't everything you just say said go to the weight of the evidence? I mean, you think every regular Suffolk County juror knows about how confessions are obtained?
2: I think if you have children, you know how to extract the confession and and, uh, and, and, the, and the other thing is th- those techniques that are being used by the Reed people have been used by parents of children and and friends of, of friends you know for time immemorial. I, I, I don't I'm not, I wasn't trying to put myself in the position of the jury. One of the one of the uh, threshold showings to make on an admissibility basis is whether this is going to be of any help to the jury. It's simply an argument that I made it. it, it I believe it. Um, but I don't think I was usurping the role of the jury. It was my opinion
1: um, that what he had to offer to the jury was not helpful in that particular set of facts. I also want to make sure, well, just suggest to you, too, when you're picking an expert, um, you have to remember you really have three hurdles to get over to get past the judge as gatekeeper. First, got to show it's not a junk science. I think in this day and age, the enlightened people say, false confessions, not a junk science. But then you also have to convince the judge that you don't have a junk scientist and you don't have junk methodology. So remember, you're not home free just by saying, hey, by waving an expert on false confessions. You have to convince the judge that this scientist is worth her or his money and that her or his methodology was um, within uh, scientific norms. So just bear that in mind. Yes.
6: Mark, I've coerced lots of confessions out of my kids, and I have never once told them that their fingerprints were on the cookie jar. Uh, there are several techniques that Reid employs that are not even close to even horrible parental techniques. So I, I don't quite agree with the analogy. I understand the underlying point, but I don't, really, I don't think that analogy holds any water.
2: I I wasn't uh, uh, I was being a little facetious, but my point my point my point is that um, I believe the question that Stephanie was asking me was um, if uh, why would I object uh, to having Dr. Offcie's testimony come in if if much of what I what he says is something that I agree with and uh, that false <coughs> confessions and wrongful convictions are to be avoided. Um, that's not to say that. Uh, I don't believe that some of the things that he said were inappropriate for the jury. Just because I want to avoid wrongful convictions doesn't mean that I then uh, should do uh, everything I can to lay down uh, and and help the defense case. My job is not to allow a wrongful conviction to take place. I mean, one of the only things that I can do is something that I did in the last case – uh, that I had. It was, a, uh, it was a murder case. It was a horrible, horrible murder case. And the defense attorney in the case came to me. Uh, it wasn't the, I did not indict it, but I, it was given to me to try. He said, you know, I really think this guy's innocent. I said, let's talk. Let's sit down and talk. And he walked me through. I said, you're going to have to walk me through. Why did you think he's innocent? And we sat down and I think he thought I was joking, but at, this, at the end I said, because his client gave a full-blown confession of the police. And I said, you know what? I'd like to talk to your client. I-, I would really like to talk to your client. And he, without missing a beat, he said, okay. So we did. And I videotaped him. And I did a two and a half hour interview under a proffer agreement. And what I said in the proffer agreement was, not only will not this not be used substantively, I won't even use it to impeach him. And for two and a half hours, I interviewed the defendant on tape, on camera. And I decided at the end, Based upon what I had seen, and again, you know, we we're only guarded by, guided by our own moral compasses, so I mean, I can only be the best I can be. I felt that what he said did not convince me that he was not guilty or even innocent of what had happened, and we ended up trying the case. Now, it ended up in an acquittal, um, and the jury spoke, and and, and that, is the, that is the result, um, but... You know, I try to be creative. I try to do everything I can. I think every prosecutor, anyone that does government prosecutorial work, ought to be terrified at the thought of sending somebody who's not guilty or innocent to jail. Absolutely terrified. I mean, I I freak out about stuff like that. Absolutely freak out about stuff like that. And I you I, sort of pursed your lips, but you know what? Um,
7: it is. I, you know, you
2: don't have to believe me, but I.
7: I My point is I think there's some value in educating a jury or a judge in a motion to suppress on the interrogation techniques, even if what the expert's going to say doesn't match up perfectly with what happens
2: with that. Right, but see, this really now is boiling down to sort of a, a, uh, a, a discussion about sort of tactics, because the issue, the issue here is how can I avoid sending an innocent person to jail in a confession case? right which really doesn't have anything to do with what an expert can or can't say in front of a jury it has to do whether somebody has has falsely confessed to a crime and what can we as practitioners do particularly the prosecution in eliminating or preventing that from happening i mean a lot of those cases that dr afshi examines they're very they're 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 like red flags you can't you you would not believe some of the cases in which Cases were brought against individuals based upon their confessions. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't want to (laughs) monopolize. That's
1: okay. Um, Yeah, we do have to cut this off. But I think it's very striking to me that we've just talked about two instances in which it has been suggested defense counsel might make their um, clients more available, both to a judge to assess credibility and to a, a DA like Mark Lee. Under a proffer agreement where it wouldn't be used. We're talking about, I'd like to think, in the rare instances we're talking wrong, to prevent wrongful convictions, people actually innocent. I query members of the bar out here whether you shouldn't be thinking about making your clients more available if you really truly believe they have falsely confessed to a crime. What have you got to lose under that circumstance? What have you really got to lose under the Simmons case if you have him or her testify at the suppression hearing? Just food for thought. Not advocating a particular um, position here. We, we have to move on to our next panel. There'll be a, a time for more question and answer um, after the next panel. But let's get down to equally skilled um, and experienced attorneys. Charlie Rankin. you have this um, Is there more? Um, Okay, it's up there. Oh, there it is. You're down there next to Mike. That's your name, Charlie Rankin, who needs no introduction to the members of the defense bar. And equally, especially if you're out in Middlesex County, Mike Fabry of the Middlesex DA's office, talking about ineffective assistance of counsel and forensic evidence.
8: Thank for having us to shout. Thanks for moderating this. Um, I want to start off by following on something that uh, Colette touched upon and uh, Mark obviously fed into, uh, and that's uh, um, in the context of ineffective assistance of counsel claims, especially in the bigger context of trying to avoid wrongful convictions, um, I want to encourage more of, of what uh, both Mark and, and Colette said, and that's uh, as lawyers, prosecutors, defense attorneys, I don't think we do enough of sort of coming together at first. We're attempting to come together at first. This is an adversarial system, and ultimately uh, uh, we're not going to agree on everything, and that's why we have judges to decide things, but uh, uh, you know, whether it's either in the context of... Uh, you file, you're, you've you been picked up to represent a, uh, a defendant who's been convicted and you uh, are preparing a direct appeal, but you decide that you want to file an ineffective assistance claim, uh, rather than filing it out of the blue, maybe call the prosecutor beforehand, even if it's just to say, I plan on doing this. Maybe we should talk about it beforehand. Maybe we want to talk about do we want a hearing, not want a hearing, especially in light of Recent cases uh, that suggest clearly, in fact, the claim should be settled by way of evidentiary hearings. So it's from that extreme, just simply, you know, civilly contacting the other side and say, "This is my general plan." The other extreme is uh, contacting a, a prosecutor at the post-conviction stage uh, and saying, "Look, I have some information that I think reasonably casts some some doubt on the validity of this conviction. Can we start off by sitting, talking down, and discussing it?" Uh, I, I think we should really, as practitioners, we should be doing more and more of that. Uh, I'm not naive, naive to the fact that, uh, you know, certainly a lot of times we're not going to uh, uh, decide and agree to a dismissal or reduction in charge. We heard Mark just talk about a situation where he actually got a chance to interview a defendant, decided to go to trial and then lost. But I, I think it really uh, puts everybody on the on the right foot if we take that approach because, as everyone in this room, and I'm sure Charlie's going to echo, wrongful convictions do not benefit anyone. They don't benefit the prosecution, they certainly don't benefit the defendant, uh, they don't benefit the public in the sense that somebody who committed the crime is still out and about and not being held responsible. And, and, and the bigger picture is wrongful convictions, uh, I sincerely believe tend to erode or further erode uh, if, if members of the public have minimal trust in law enforcement Uh, They just tend to further erode the trust that uh, the people out there have in in the system. If they uh, see perpetually that uh, either a particular police department or a particular jurisdiction has problems that ultimately lead to reversal of convictions uh, and retrials or, or dismissals, that doesn't help anybody. So I think sort of setting the tone from the beginning that we should at least try to uh, come together and discuss issues, whether it's an appeal, whether it's a motion to suppress, I think it's a good tone to set from the start. Um, In terms of an overall uh, approach to uh, preventing wrongful convictions by ineffective assistance assistance claims, uh, and not to sound simplistic or trite, but the best approaches we're all in law enforcement trying to take these days is, is prevention, and, and how do you prevent uh, an ineffective assistance a counsel claim from the start? Well, as you, you want to try to nip it in the bud during the trial pretrial phase uh, of the case before there's a conviction, you want to make sure, uh, especially as a defense attorney, certainly as a prosecutor, you want to you want to know your case, uh, you want to consider all the viable issues, and this applies to whether it's identification, uh, misidentification issues, confession issues, and the like. Um, You want to consider all your viable issues, uh, and you want to make sure that you advise your client on the, especially as defense attorneys, on on all the viable um, key issues, decisions that that they have to make. You want to know your own capabilities. Um, Stay on top of the law, CLE programs, certainly relying on your colleagues. I know the Defense Bar does it. We, in prosecution circles, we're constantly calling uh, and speaking to each other, either inside the county, outside the county. Uh, am I making this approach right? Uh, discussing defenses, trying to decide do we use evidence that even though it may have been lawfully seized or a confession in the end may have been uh, lawfully taking, taken, do we want to use it? Those type of tactical things. Uh, and as I said, uh, don't be afraid to discuss the case with the, with the prosecutor. I, most prosecutors are, are approachable. Uh, and, and indeed, most prosecutors, if you don't agree, ultimately, let's say you're trying to talk disposition with a, uh, uh, with a prosecutor, uh, most of them are going to be willing to, and the ones I supervise, I certainly insist, if you disagree with them at that stage, don't hesitate to ask them, can I, you know, can I talk to your supervisor about this particular disposition? Uh, I know that's a little bit aside from preventing wrongful con- convictions, but it still ties into the whole, I guess, spirit of uh, attempting to cooperate in these types of cases. By and large, so, however, I think one of the key things that uh, we all need to do um, in helping prevent wrongful convictions, both on the defense side and the prosecution side, is is discovery, and that's making sure that as a prosecutor, that full discovery is always always provided. I have a general practice to, uh, if if I get a discovery request request that uh, is borderline. Uh, I generally try not to pick battles with discovery. And I try to be as amenable as possible, because I think it's important. If there's something out there that's that's arguably relevant, might take me a little difficulty to get it, uh, It might be an argument that you're not entitled to it, uh, why fight that battle? Uh, ultimately, it might help my case and me sort out uh, the issues that I'm facing, but I think it's certainly important. Who am I to say that you know a particular piece of evidence that a defense counsel is seeking on behalf of his or her case um, you know, they might not make a convincing argument to me that it's really relevant, but I'm not to make that call. So generally, I try not to pick battles on, on discovery cases, um, whether it's Rule 14 discovery. Rule 17, though, I think uh, over the past several years, there have been a number of cases that have discussed that as a uh, not as a discovery rule, but as a, a trial preparatory rule. And I think that's something that's probably underutilized by both prosecutors and, and defense counsel. Uh, one case that comes to mind—I think I uh, put it in my materials uh, I was very creative a Rule 17 motion was filed by a defense attorney to get access to a private residence to do a view. Now, in the—I uh, think the case uh, basically said—I think it was remanded for further proceedings, but it laid out the procedure, how, for example, a defense attorney, the type of showing that you would need to to make. So that—that's something again, uh, because discovery is is your. You're trying to get information about your case, we're trying to get information about the case. The more information you have about your case, the more likely under the adversarial system, we're going to prevent uh, wrongful conv- convictions. We're going to be more prepared to deal with the, uh, with all the issues either pre-trial and then post-trial if there is a conviction. Uh, don't forget, certainly for indigent clients, there's the 261 70, uh, 17 A, B, and C, I think, uh, statutes that allow for for fees and costs for, for indigent defend, uh, defendants. Um, know your obligations uh, <coughs> post-trial. This, I think, applies more to defense counsel, but obligations to preserving the, the file, obligation to filing notice of appeal, uh, revise and revoke motions, uh, jail sentence, uh, jail credit, uh, sentence uh, appeals, those types of things. Um, in terms of um, post-trial, um, the the things that I think are important, I provide some uh, some of the citations to some resources. You, you want to know what is out there and what rules require the court, for example, what statutes of rules require DA's office, for example, to preserve um, its file, to preserve its evidence uh, so that you can get access to it, especially you, in the context of, uh, uh, of, of forensics. Um, and I know Charlie's going to talk more about this, but uh, there are rules and regulations that require uh, files uh, to be maintained by a court, by the Secretary of State office has regulations that require court files, PA's office files, papers, and the like to be maintained and preserved. Courts have to maintain uh, exhibits uh, for a certain period of time before they are either turned back to the other side or, or, or the defense. So you want to know that there are those uh, guidelines out there that are going to govern uh, both our conduct and your, your accessibility to evidence that might uh, might be available for post-conviction relief. In terms of just a general overview of how um, my office, and I think most DA's offices, and then how the, the crime lab in Massachusetts would approach a, um, you know, the, 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 the typical uh, post-conviction uh, request for uh, DNA testing or some sort of forensic testing. Um, again, I think the first, the best initial approach is to contact the DA's office. If you have reasonably uh, reliable and credible information, that look, and I have some information that there's certain forensic evidence out there that's going to lead to uh, either exoneration of my client or to um, mitigation of the charges. Uh, what's going to happen first of all, uh, if we got that request, and that can come from uh, a defendant. Sometimes it comes from uh, counsel. Um, some counsel go directly to the lab. The lab is going to come to us anyway. We're going to, um, you know, one of the first things we're going to do is we're going to uh, locate the uh, the files that we have. We're going to, uh, and we'll typically have appellate files and trial files at that particular stage. We're going to assign somebody um, to the case. We're going to do an initial review. We're probably going to get involved in. Um, in witness contact, and then we're going to begin the process of trying to. Okay, we got it. You know, we've got this request. Uh, it uh, on its face, it appears valid. Uh, we're going to attempt to identify what is out there. Doesn't mean we're going to automatically start testing. Uh, and it might be again. We'll, we're going to disagree that the threshold, whatever the threshold is, has been met to do the testing. But we'll take initial steps to identify what is out there in terms of documentation, in terms of physical evidence that's still available, uh, either at the lab or still in the custody of the state police, the local police, the day's office. Um, and then we're going to hopefully either begin the discussion or begin the process through a motion for new trial or uh, post-conviction discovery uh, of, of setting up the process for, uh, for testing. Victim notification is, uh, is going to be part of that, uh, depending on the type of showing, the type of case is going to determine when we'll make victim or family notification and the like. And ultimately, we'll either get to the point where we'll, we'll agree, and uh, the few offices that Middlesex has had uh, post-conviction DNA cases, I know Suffolk has had a number of them, but the, the few that we've had in my office over the years that I've been there, um, most of them have been, okay, we review the case, and we agree to submit items uh, for further testing. And uh, some, however, have gone to uh, certainly motions and There there have been court orders orders to direct the testing to be done, Uh, but again, I think uh, uh, if we all sort of begin with the approach that, um, and this is going to come from the prosecution side as as well, but begin with the approach that uh, if you have uh, what you think is a legitimate issue uh, in terms of a wrongful conviction, uh, approach the DA's office initially. By and large, I can guarantee in Middlesex, we're going to at least have an open mind. We're going to we're going to hear it out. We might all we might agree, but at least we start on that footing. That uh, you know, we'll we'll listen to what is out there because, again, as Mark said, and I think as Collette alluded to, it, none of us uh, want to see somebody wrongfully convicted. Uh, I agonize it uh, about it from time to time. Uh, I happen to think we do a good job in Middlesex. Uh, most uh, uh, cities and towns in Middlesex. Uh, I know there have been problems in some jurisdictions in the past, but uh, if we start from that premise that, look, we will, you know, we will approach it with an open mind, uh, understanding that it is an adversarial system, I think ultimately we're going to try to all seek the same thing.
6: Um, is my PowerPoint loaded, Carol? So while Carol's loading, I, I have a little PowerPoint to talk about a particular example of forensics and... Um, ineffective assistance, uh, preventing wrongful convictions. Uh, One thing that Mark said a few minutes ago struck me, and I think it's very true, is that uh, he described the process of investigation and what he goes through, I guess, after the case comes to him, while when the police have done their uh, work and he gets a confession and he has to see how that fits in with the uh, other evidence in the case. Uh, When a defense lawyer gets... A case, I think the defense lawyer essentially goes through the same process. Uh, In part, you talk to your client, uh, you find out who the witnesses are eventually, uh, you find out what scientific evidence the Commonwealth has, and then you uh, vet that. And that's true both at the pretrial stage and it's true at the post conviction stage. Um, You know, we do a lot of post conviction work, and uh, it is it never ceased to amaze me how much time it great. Uh, okay, how much time it takes to uh, work your way through does, does this work? Okay. Uh, how much time it takes to work your way through the transcript, uh, the file in the clerk's office, the evidence that's admitted, uh... the defense lawyers file the defense lawyers investigation and that's just the beginning then you start looking at it and saying what could have been done differently let me give you an example of a case that we're, we're working on now uh... left quick. Okay. uh... grinder is a case that was uh... A doctor convicted of murdering his wife in norfolk county uh, several years ago. Uh, It's on direct appeal now. We litigated a new trial motion uh, before the trial judge, lost it. Uh, It's now awaiting briefing or in the midst of briefing in the SJC. So a key piece of evidence was uh, near where uh, Mrs. Greiner's body was found were drag marks Uh, and at the scene uh, the responding police officers uh, found a footprint. Uh, and uh, their theory at trial was that the murderer uh, made that footprint, and that footprint matched Dr. Greiner's, uh sneaker. And uh, more in, or as importantly, uh, that the uh, footprint was of a heel, and that the direction of the heel and the drag mark was consistent with the defendant standing behind the dead body and dragging it this way to where the body was finally laid to rest. So this is the uh, government's theory uh, and they prepared, uh, they they went to the scene right after uh, the body was discovered, they saw the drag mark on the path, they have expert testimony about a footprint by a uh, long time uh, crime scene services uh, uh, person. then a sergeant, now a lieutenant, Ribeiro, uh, that the print was made by the defendant's left sneaker and it was his heel. Uh, so, in the opening statement, the prosecutor very effectively, I mean, this was a case where the prosecution just did a, I mean, if you want to talk about an exemplar of advocacy, uh, whether it was the right result or not is a different question. An exemplar of advocacy, it's Uh The footprint evidence was described in detail in the opening statement, the footprint made by the killer as he dragged the body backwards was the same size as the defendant's heel and had some of the same manufacturing characteristics. Just really dramatic uh, uh, evidence in an opening statement. Uh, Sergeant Ribeiro testifies at trial. She's been at crime scene services for many years. On footprints she attended a 40 hour class at the FBI, she attended a 40 hour class Uh, at an international law enforcement seminar, uh, qualified as an expert. She went to the scene. uh, She photographed and made dental stone castings of eight footprints at the scene. Uh, She photographed the footwear of all of the responding law enforcement and uh, emergency personnel so that she could rule out those. Uh, And uh, the police, when they arrested Dr. Grineter, took his sneakers and she had his sneakers. So she says uh, footprint number seven was the key uh, thing. She testifies at trial that the drag mark starts in the area where the uh, uh, footprint number seven is and leads back towards the area where uh, Mrs. Reiner's body was found. Uh, And that by comparing the photographs and the casting, the left footwear of the defendant, the left sneaker, corresponded with the footprint at the scene, and that Graniter's uh, sneaker could have made the impression and uh, she described that it was the heel of this left shoe Uh, and uh, both uh, you know she characterizes it in various ways in the examination both using correspond which suggests that it is and consistent with or could have which is less certain Uh, the heel of the footwear would be towards the back of the victim, at dra- dragging in the manner I demonstrated. The defense lawyer uh, cross-examined her about various aspe- aspects of her testimony, but uh, stayed a- entirely away from question- any questioning about footprint number seven. Closing argument by the ADA, it's just rammed, rammed, rammed. Uh, that's important evidence. Is it prop? And this was Uh, a strange argument that he made, but it it was a telling argument. He said, is it probable that someone dragging the body without leaving the footwear impression? Is that probable? And he answered the question, no, that's not probable. That's that's laughable because it was a dirt path. There were, you know, eight footprints there. One very clear. It was his heel, the defendant's heel. He made it. It's the defendant's heel mark right where he would have picked her up. Uh, he says this is strong, powerful evidence that the wearer of these shoes dragged Meg Grinader to right where that heel sits, and that stayed there until the police were there. So uh, we are hired to do the appeal. Now um, one would hope that uh, the fact that Dr. Grinader had money uh, would not make a difference in the kind of showing he was able to make. Uh, a new trial motion. You could be the judge of that. Uh, we located uh, William Bodziak, who is the expert in the world on footprints. He authored the textbook. He was head of the FBI, that section of the FBI lab for 25 years. Uh, he taught local and state police. In fact, he taught Sergeant Ribeiro, as you could guess, uh, which is why we found him. You might ask, uh, and. Uh, I can tell you this because it it came out at the new trial motion hearing. The trial lawyer had a footwear expert look at uh, this question, Uh, did not present testimony, Uh, and as it came out at the uh, new trial motion hearing, the expert consulted by trial counsel uh, agreed with Sergeant Ribeiro that that was the defendant's heel. Bodniak's opinion footprint seven was not the heel of the left shoe but rather the toe of the right shoe. There was no evidence of a heel mark and the direction of the print points in the opposite direction from the opinion of Dr. Rivero, so that he was not dragging the body like this but rather he came upon it as he had testified to uh, going in a certain direction in the path. So his uh, opinion was very different from Sergeant Rivero's and very consistent and exculpatory with um, Dr. Griner's testimony. Twenty-three months after filing the affidavit of Bodniak, we get an affidavit uh, from uh, Sergeant Ribeiro saying that uh, she was wrong. I concur with Mr. Bodziak that the impression number seven represents two areas of the defendant's right sneaker, one impression being the toe, not the heel. So, uh, you know, we made various arguments, uh, uh, you know, we, we argued that it was ineffective assistance of counsel not to get a competent expert, not to have the expert do proper things, uh, we argued federal due process, we argued recantation, uh, we located, a, and I think one of the uh, sharp lawyers in the top of the... Uh, uh, stands, located a uh, Seventh Circuit case from 1928 that um, uh, sets forth a wonderful standard of review uh, uh, that if the jury might have been, uh, might have reached a different result, we were entitled to a new trial. Uh, regrettably, uh, Judge Chernoff uh, didn't buy the uh, Seventh Circuit's 1928 opinion. Uh, he concluded that it wasn't an effective assistance of counsel Um, because uh, trial counsel had hired a seemingly competent expert who agreed with Ribeiro, and there was no reason to keep looking for a favorable expert. You might ask why we spent the client's money and our time chasing this if it had been properly vetted, and it was, frankly, because the client insisted that this was wrong and that it hadn't happened that way, and it was, you know, it was his insistence that we pursued it. Judge, Judge Chernoff analyzed it under uh, newly discovered evidence uh, and said that um, it is in fact newly discovered. Uh, he rejected Larragan in the Seventh Circuit case. He rejected the Commonwealth's argument that, which you, know, you see in every appeal or new trial motion, that this was de minimis, it was uh, uh, you know beside the point uh, because Uh, In fact, he said the Commonwealth's footwear evidence was effectively presented, persuasively argued. He said that there were basically two pieces of evidence that supported the theory that the defendant held the victim from behind and dragged her down the path. One was the heel print, one was blood on the defendant's jacket. Uh, I'm going to spare you the DNA lecture. Uh, We located an expert who never had testified uh, for a defendant, who challenged the work that Selmark had done in this case uh, and, you know, was, I thought, was pretty good. Um, Judge Chernoff differed, but uh, the I guess the point is that in a case like this, you try to attack whatever is presented, whatever holds up the um, government's case. Here, uh, we felt like once Ribeiro... Confessed error, so to speak. We were in good shape. Uh, uh, you know, Judge Chernoff recognized the persuasiveness of its closing closing argument, but uh, it didn't rule her change in testimony didn't rule out uh, the dragging of the victim and uh, leaving no footprint. Harken back to the prosecutor's argument that it was unlikely that that would have taken place. Uh, her new opinion weakens but doesn't negate the Commonwealth's arguments, and there was substantial evidence, even without the heel print. So, uh, you know, that's just kind of an example of how you can expertise a case. And you can do that pre-trial or you can do it post-trial. Uh, post-trial is much harder. A, because uh, getting funds in an appointed case is uh, not a matter of right, but a matter of discretion, and I shudder to think what uh, a, a Superior Court judge, even someone like Judge Chernoff, would have done with a request for funds for Dr. Uh, Mr. Batsyak. Uh I'm Sorry, I lost my train of thought. Um, but, so you do in, investigate each of the uh, um, aspects of it uh, to try to expertise it. Um, And uh, the other problem you frequently have, and we heard some about this last week, uh, with access to the evidence. Here, we were fortunate because uh, all of the stuff had been admitted as evidence at trial. It was in the clerk's office. Uh, We uh, had ready access to it. Um, And uh, it was not a situation, as I think some of the people talking about the western part of the state where the uh, prosecutors only know the word no when you're seeking access to something. Um, uh, you know, we didn't we didn't anticipate that problem. Uh, Judge Chernoff was going to let us make our record and uh, so, you know, we could do the work both on the DNA as well as on the uh, um, uh, footwear. You know, we'll, we'll see ultimately what the SJC uh, does with it, but it's a, it's a pretty good record. There are a couple of other things that I want to mention Uh, before I turn it back over to Mike. One of the things that uh, I think is a wonderful tool that is rarely used is uh, the State Public Records Act. Um, We recently did a case uh, uh, in Suffolk County where a defendant uh, or somebody came to us and said uh, there's a defendant who's been in prison for 35 years uh, He located some information using the state public records request. CPCS has declined to appoint post-conviction counsel uh, on a Rule 30, uh, on a screening. Uh, Will you look at it? And so Jamie, my partner Jamie Salton, looked at it and uh, was just, had his mind blown, just totally blown. This was a case where um, the defendant, years and years later, had written to the Boston Police Department saying, uh, please send me, any investigation of my case. I was convicted of murder in 1969 or something. Uh, And they sent him uh, a transcript of of, uh, two interviews by Boston police detectives uh, that were done the day after the killing of the two key Commonwealth witnesses. And if you compared those two statements to the testimony, the transcript was still around, uh, it was there were amazing inconsistencies. The, the gist of it was that uh, the two witnesses testified at trial that they had seen the defendant the day before, and so they knew he was in the area, and so that when the murder took place uh, that night, they were in a position to identify him. Uh, at trial, at, in, in their statements, that was the trial testimony, in their statements, they said, oh, I hadn't seen him in a month. The statements weren't disclosed to the defense lawyer. Uh, Presumably, it wasn't disclosed to the Commonwealth. The the district attorney's office had lost its file by the time. Uh, So looking at the trial testimony and the public records document we got, uh, we went to the district attorney's office. We filed a new trial motion, went to the DA's office, and said, we got you. And they looked at it and said, wow, this is really bad. And they agreed to uh, the granting of a new trial motion. And uh, the guy was released from jail. And uh, the case was ultimately uh, dismissed uh, without prejudice, and uh, they're not going to reindict it. So it's... uh, and the guy's living a, you know, a life of freedom now. So remember the public records request. I say that for another reason. I have a case where it's on... it's a murder case on uh, direct appeal. Uh, We filed a new trial motion. Uh, we wrote to the uh, Saugus Police Department uh, saying, uh, send us your records. And they sent us seven police reports. In discovery, only three police reports had been turned over. Uh, Amazingly, of the uh, three police reports had been turned over, essentially the bottom half of the page had been redacted. And as you can guess, the bottom half of the page had some really good stuff. And it was redacted in such a way that you couldn't tell uh... that it was redacted uh... i mean it was just looked like the report ended so uh, as we sit here i don't know how that happened i don't know if if a different version was printed out and given to the DA's office uh... or if some wise guy detective decided to delete something before it was printed out i just don't know uh... mark lee's been assigned to the case and he's looking into it now so hopefully we'll find uh, found, find out. Uh, but remember the Public Records Act uh, as you uh, work on cases uh, both uh, before trial but especially after trial. One of the problems with after trial is you really you don't have compulsory process and it's very, it, it, if you have trouble meeting the uh, uh, LAMPON standard for uh, Rule 17 pre-trial you really have trouble meeting it uh, post-trial. So I guess the things I take from this are: uh, one, you you just have to peel every layer of the onion. Two, the danger signs to me are, uh, you know, when you see some uh, police officers associated with the case, uh, when you see cases from some time period, uh, when you see cases where late discovery is dumped on a defendant, where. You wonder why uh, f- competent forensic uh, testing wasn't done uh, where it seems like people are going through the motions. Those are the cases that most cry out for uh, work. I also think that when a case, and, and I don't mean to be disrespectful of the state police lab because there's some very competent scientists there, but there are uh, people that I think are really not uh, scientists or not Fully qualified. I mean, Sergeant Rivera. I don't. I don't know her, but uh, attending a 40-hour course on footwear is not enough experience to do testimony. In my judgment, in a murder case, it's just not. And if you have access or can get access to a really qualified expert, uh, it behooves you to do that. Uh, and I know, uh, you know, just talking to other uh, lawyers uh, about experts that are available, experienced people have had with experts is invaluable because you can gradually work your way around and kind of separate the people that are just going to go through the motions versus the people that are really going to look at it. And finding someone who's really going to look at it and who knows the stuff is just invaluable. So, I don't know, that's my two big words.
8: I want to follow on to uh, the comment about a FOIA request. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, the recent case, and this is not quite forensic, but I think you can qualify as forensics. Uh, the recent racial profiling cases, um, those cases came down basically saying, well, the showing hadn't been met uh, to get access to certain records to support the claim that a particular trooper in Andover, I think, it was a city or town was uh, practicing racial profiling as motor vehicle stops, But the court did mention, sort of in passing, that there are other areas that you can get that information. And a FOIA request, in my view, is, is a way that you might it, you might be able to sort of get over that hurdle to make that land crime showing, uh, and otherwise not have the information. Or well, the prosecution might have opened their, uh, their files up. everything they have, they turn over, but there still might not be enough. Uh, but a FOIA request might get you over that hurdle uh, in that particular case. Um, the comment up here earlier about the police officers, uh, dirty police officers, police officers that lie, uh, generally the Wayne's case I think is the case that talks about getting access to um, police internal affairs <coughs> files. Uh, oftentimes we have difficulty. They, they won't turn them over to us. Uh, and you, you have to take that route, but if you can't meet the Lampron standard, what do you do? Well, a FOIA request. And it's amazing what a FOIA request uh, might turn out. You might get some redacted uh, reports from the police department that we couldn't even get access to, but then it might give you enough to uh, to sort of make that uh, that Lampron standard and file the Wayness motion and get the rest of it in an unredacted form. Um, so I, I think the point that we're both trying to make is that you really do. The, the analogy is great. You got to keep peeling it back. As a prosecutor, you got to keep peeling it back. I got to assume uh, that if I make a request, either on my own or at the request of a defense counsel, to a police department or a law enforcement agency, that they're going to fulfill it. You know, I, I think I do a good job. I generally trust law enforcement officers, but I like to go to the police station and say, "Give me the file and go through the file." Don't hesitate. Another one of those. Zones suggestions in the spirit of cooperation. Don't hesitate to, well, sometimes I'll offer him hey, going down to uh, XYZ police station to go to the file and make sure we got everything. Do you want to come along? Uh, or we'll go to our state police unit to sit down together to go through their file, to look through their evidence. Uh, it, it certainly helps me because it, it shows that I'm trying to be open and trying to get everything that uh, the other side is, is reasonably requesting. Uh, but I think it also... Uh, puts a law enforcement agency on notice that, look, okay, you know, we're here to get whatever information you have. We're entitled to it, they're entitled to it. Uh, so don't uh, certainly hesitate to ask to go to the lab, for example. Um, you know, you might just want to go along to be with the prosecutor, as a prosecutor requests the, file, requests the file. I think it really helps the process and helps the agencies that work with law enforcement to understand that, look, when we say we want your whole DNA file, I don't want just a DNA report. I want all the backup. I want all the notes. I want all the documents, all the forms, and everything that is used. You know, all the paperwork that deals with the uh, the chemicals that are used, the cleaning agents that are used, the whole ball of wax. Uh, and I think they uh, a visit either by the prosecutor or a prosecutor in defense really drives home the fact that you know full discovery means full discovery. And another nightmare that that we get is when down the road. I did appellate work for six or seven years before uh, my present position, but. Uh, you know, what uh, we just heard about uh, getting a FOIA request and now getting eight reports, and I only got three. I want to go out and hang myself because it's like, you know, you think you do a good job and that type kind of stuff happens. You know.
6: I mean, I think. Intentionally and unintentionally. I think what Mike said is really uh, a, a good idea. Um, I know Ted <coughs> Ted Heinrich, who's going to speak in a minute, is familiar with the phenomenon of having, uh, on the federal side, having. Uh, prosecutions that originated with local police departments who uh, are not perhaps as assiduous uh, record keepers as uh, FBI or uh, whatnot, and having to go down there and say okay let me see Detective so and so's file and there's six officers around and you really have to you know go through each, each of them to make sure you got it because if you don't do it sure than you know the Sun rises in the morning there's going to be a report surfacing at some point and it's going to be heck to pay so you know it's it's hard to uh, you know make the law enforcement agencies understand that everything means everything
8: one, one other tip uh, I hope not give away the story here but only, obviously, you want to read the reports to the extent that they refer to other discoveries, you're going to ask for that, or the prosecutor's going to read it beforehand, and I'm going to ask for it. But a lot of the forms that are now generated, they're computer generated, and some of them link to other forms in the custody of a, of a particular police station. Uh, it'll be evidence somewhere on that form that this form is also tied to, you know, a booking form is tied to a custody form. and. You know, you'll have the booking form, but it will reference a custody form. You don't have it. Ask for the custody form. Little so examples like that are going to, you know, you know that form might lead to another form. You know, that's that's how we try to mine the information and get it from the police department before we turn it over to discovery, especially in this
7: computer age. Anybody have any questions?
1: Randy? I have a question. Thank
7: you. Charlie, uh, on the public records request that you made in that murder case, Do you think you would have gotten that information if you had made that request prior to trial? I thought there was an exception in the public records request uh, for police records that were part of an investigation that Um, was ongoing. Well,
6: the the old murder case, uh, the records request was made long, long afterwards by the the defendant. Uh, Could we have used it before trial? I think so. Well, could you have made a
7: public records request before trial? Yes, then, I think you can. Why don't I you mean, do that in every case, it, it, just make a public records request on the police. Can you do that, Mary? Jo? Uh,
6: Suzanne, no. no, I don't think because of the investigative <laughs> exception.
4: <laughs> no yes.
1: Mary Joe, former legal advisor to the Boston Police Department. <laughs> <laughs>
9: um,
4: Our practice, and I haven't been there for a number of years now, but our practice was if it was a request that came in for uh, any records or reports that related to a pending investigation was to deny the request and to refer to the investigatory exemption but also to copy the district attorney's office or if it was a murder case to confer with the district attorney's office so that they knew that the request had been made. Um, we, We had a practice of whenever there was a challenge brought to that kind of a denial of appearing at the criminal session and asking the court to look at it as a a discovery motion but I I mean practically speaking I think it's a good thing to do because I think if there's any opportunity to clue in the district attorney who's handling the case that maybe they don't have all of the reports it's it's a a second way of of double checking and I um, having worked with the Boston Police Department for a long time, I think it is an exceptionally good idea to make a personal visit in a case that's important to you, and I would assume all of them are, because I think that there are um, various offices within the department that might have records, and if there's not great communication internally, people might not know that a, a request has been made for those files to be turned over in the first place. have a question up in the upper
1: corner. Of course, you both have to be at opposite ends of the
4: <laughs> auditorium.
1: <laughs> This is true. This is the most exercise I've gotten all week.
9: Um, I'm just curious what each of you might have to say about what options would be open to a prosecutor pre-trial if um, if a prosecutor has concerns about whether or not uh, defense counsel is providing
1: effective assistance of counsel. (laughs) (laughs) Because... um, Good question.
9: But from both sides as well. I mean, you can run from the obvious—that might be defense counsel who seems intoxicated—to the case where uh, you've provided all the information that seems to be relevant to a potential constitutional violation, or it looks like investigatory avenues aren't being explored, or whatever.
1: Let's make it even more delicious. What should the judge do? Of well, course, the judge has to. Know. Yeah,
6: it's true. I think it's a really uh, good question and it's a really hard spot for a prosecutor to be in because I think most good prosecutors want to do the case once. They want to see the other side well represented and uh, not have to worry about an IAC claim coming along later. Um, I'll never forget the first Superior Court case I tried. Uh, Hiller Zobel called me up at the sidebar and said, I don't recognize you. I don't mean any offense by this, but have you tried a Superior Court case? I said, no, Judge. He said, well, would you consider uh, talking to someone to try it with you? And I, I said, well, maybe I will. And so I, I talked to Margaret Burnham, and Margaret tried it with me, and uh, it was a great experience. Uh, so it was a, you know, he had a, you know, Hiller has a certain manner about him, and
3: <laughs> everybody, uh, uh you
6: know, uh, takes him with a grain of salt. I, I you know, it, that worked out fine, and I, you know, I was a little embarrassed by it. But he, it, he did it at sidebar, and uh, I don't think he felt I was being ineffective. But he just, you know, thought I was a little green around the edges. Um, and I get calls from time to time fr- about uh, concerns about uh, lawyers, and um, you know, I think one thing that a prosecutor could do would be to. Uh, talk to the lawyer talk to the lawyer about affiliating with someone else if it's a bar advocate talk to someone in charge of the bar advocate program if it's uh, um, uh, you know a, a federal case talk to someone in the federal defender office or uh, you know there's somebody on the CJ program uh, if it's bad enough uh, raise it with the judge and you know you, you can raise it in a way that doesn't say I think the guy's ineffective, but you can say I've, you know, you can figure out something to say. I think it's smart to raise it, uh, but it's, you know, it's a little dicey. I'm sure Mike probably has a more sober... Well, no,
8: no, I think Charlie's hit on everything that came to my mind. It's, it, it's, it's one of those types of things that, uh, as Mark said earlier, kind of freaked out. Um, but it, it, it does or should cause the prosecutor to be much more sensitive, sensitive in terms of discovery First, of, you know. First of all, I'm going to make sure that this person has everything they want, everything they're entitled to, and probably that a little bit more. Uh, another practice that you can do, certainly as a prosecutor, is, as Charlie said, talk to the uh, defense attorney, even flag issues, flag the jeez You know, and you can do it in a subtle way, and it's like, this is all in a, you know, a matter of degree because. You know you have uh, all the way from the the drunk lawyer to something less than that but uh, you can flag issues with the with the lawyer that you think are uh, are legitimate issues or issues that uh, the government is likely to have some some difficulty with and then I guess the next step would be involving the judge either you know subtly um, with the judge during a discovery conference or during a uh, a, a lobby conference on a plea flagging issues judge well you know this is why we're making this recommendation because there's potentially this issue, this issue. So then you can key the judge into it and ultimately you might have to, if it is really bad, you might have to involve the uh, uh, the judge directly.
5: I was just wondering, what
1: particular um, policies does the uh, ADA's office uh, make it so that your philosophy trickles down to the, you know, the, the lower levels of the ADAs? Because it's all, it's all great in philosophy, but I'm wondering what specific implementations I made through that, through I, the department.
8: We have a lot of in-house training, uh, and there's a lot of in-house informal, informal mentoring, I think it more travels and trickles down in that particular One manner. Um, I believe that uh, all the people at my supervisory level uh, in, in my office uh, pretty much have the same Frame of mind that look, if this is an open book. We're here not to put the notches in the uh, in the gun or the cane, so to speak, but we're here to uh, uh, to do justice, to make sure that we do get convictions, we get the right convictions, and, and we only have to do this once. Uh, that's the fair way to do it. That's the efficient way to do it from a taxpayer's point of view. Um, so I think through a lot of you know, it's easy to say, but uh, sometimes hard to get the result. But through a lot of uh, a lot of mentoring. Uh, and a lot of in-house uh, training, but it ties back to what I was suggesting earlier about uh, don't be afraid to sort of talk to the, the the office, talk to the prosecutor, or even suggest it. You might have a an inexperienced prosecutor, just like you might have an ineffective uh, defense attorney, where uh, you know you got a prosecutor that doesn't realize that they have to turn over A, B, and C, and it's it's you know it's one of these duh they have to turn over A, B, and C, but for whatever reason they just don't they don't have enough experience to know it. Uh, don't be afraid to sort of suggest that. Well, can we, you know, please can I talk to your supervisor? And uh, I'm sure every county the same, that each district court is gonna have uh, at least one or more prosecutors and one or more supervisor, and then it ultimately works up to a super, uh, superior court level. Uh, but I think engaging um, the ADA and or uh, his or her superiors is gonna, is gonna help sort of teach us and, and sort of stay in the frame of mind that uh, you know, we're here to get just convictions, you know, the right conviction, not just convictions.
1: We have a question over here.
9: Um, hi, my question is actually about um, the case that you used as the example to start off the session. I understand that um, after the fact, looking back and getting that second expert, it seems obvious that the trial lawyer was ineffective. Um, do you think that at the time, a trial lawyer, the, this trial lawyer at the time, having identified this as an issue, hired an expert expert um, who presumably has some expertise in this field, again, maybe not the most expertise, but this is not someone who doesn't know a footprint from a, you know, handprint, and um, and obviously has some expertise, listened to the expert, had them review all the material, talk to them, um, and accepted their opinion. Do you think at the time that lawyer should have known that they were, that trial lawyer should have known that they were being ineffective based on the information they had then? I mean, and fo- to follow up, are trial lawyers under an obligation to get multiple Expert opinions in every case, and how does that work with court-appointed cases when we have to fight and fight and fight just to get the one fund, you know, one motion allowed for yeah, funds? I,
6: it's a really hard question. Uh, certainly, there's no rule that says you have to keep looking until you get a the right opinion. Uh, and uh, I don't think that the trial lawyer in this case at any point recognized that he had done anything wrong. Uh, uh, indeed, until uh, Sergeant Ribeiro, you know, admitted that she had made a mistake. Uh, I, I think even the trial lawyer, even looking at uh, uh, Mr. Bodziak's uh, affidavit, uh, didn't recognize that this wasn't just another hired gun, uh, but he was the guy and he got it right because he was more careful. Um, I mean, having said that. This was, this was a case that was well financed, so he, there was no reason to not go to the best. Uh, how do you, you know, getting funds is a terrible, terrible thing. I mean, I hate to think of how many Superior Court judges would give you the money necessary to go to uh, Jacksonville, Florida, and bring in the footwear guy there. Uh, who is uh, is the best? I mean, some of them will. Uh, I'm sh- I'm pretty sure we wouldn't have gotten funds for it post conviction if we had uh, had to use Rule 30. Uh, so I think uh, the lesson I draw from that is, at trial, as you're preparing for trial, don't uh, take the first expert that comes along. I mean, I remember the. Uh, fellow who was convicted of shooting a Boston police officer who uh, was exonerated a couple years ago, his name escapes me now but uh, it was a question of fingerprint evidence and uh, it was you know, the common the Boston police fingerprint guy testified it was the defendants the defense lawyer had a fingerprint person look at it and that person agreed and it just wasn't the guy and you know I don't know how that finally played out about you know, what was happening it led to some reforms into the fingerprint unit for sure but I think you really have to be very careful in uh, selecting as good an expert as you can possibly get uh, not just the person that's uh, readily comes to the court most often I, so I think that's the lesson I would draw from it and you know frankly uh, I think you have to listen to the clients too and make a judgment I mean I You know, if I had just looked at this case, looked at this file, and uh, seen Ribeiro's testimony and seen the report and seen the defense uh, analysis of it, I might not have said, "Well, let's go out and find uh, Mr. Bodziak." You know, I might not have done that. But for listening to the client, we talked
1: about this last week about why judges are involved in this process at all. I won't editorialize more than I did last week. I'd probably edit- editorialize more than I probably should have. But it's a very, um, I think, um, controversial subject. I mean, it's a, I don't think you're going to find a judge who wants to get involved in this approval of, of bills. I don't, I'm not sure why CPCS doesn't do its own approval of its own bills. Um, their budgetary constraints, and how do I know about your budget? Um, it's a very tough topic, in my personal opinion. I used to have a colleague at the Boston Municipal Court, um, where I served before I uh, went to the Superior Court, and um, he used to call it um, the Rockefeller defense—that he didn't think that indigent defendants were entitled to the Rockefeller defense. In other words, what you know, if they were well healed, you know, you could. A Rockefeller could hire anybody, like maybe Mr. – I don't know how expensive Mr. Bozniak was, but um, I, I don't we – we judges have no standards. I mean, should you have the Rockefeller defense? Should you be able to call, you know, what's his name, Dr. Lee and, and the most expensive experts in the United States? Should a defendant be allowed to do that? I mean, these are subjects that we have to deal with, uh, you know, on the front line basis every day. and. We judges have no guidelines about this. Um, Should you be allowed to hire the most expensive expert in the United States? I mean, you have to consider the realities. There's not unlimited funds out there. For everybody, for your client that I allow $30,000, there'll be another client out there, you know, Crystal's client, who can't get funding for somebody very important in her case. These are, you know, these are realities that you, you know, and that's why it's a very controversial subject. Um, there are, I won't, I won't even go farther than that. But.
9: If I could just really briefly
1: to follow up on that, I mean,
9: I think a lot of us at CPCS would like it if we could divvy up that money or have Bill divvy up that money and not have to go in front of the court. But you know, the thing I think, and what I'm getting out of this and out of our earlier conversation um, with the first set of panelists is. You know, we talk about we want to prevent wrongful convictions. Well, we don't know which is going to be the wrongful conviction and which isn't. And I think the whole point of how our justice system is set up is that we treat even the most guilty person as if he's the most innocent person because if we don't, then someone's going to fall into the wrong category. And we have to err on the side of let's treat every case as if it could become a wrongful conviction. And I think we need to err on the side of again as much information as much resources as possible and you know just on the very technical issue of this funds, you know there anyone who is CBCS um, expert you know it's not not it can't cost you know 100 million dollars because their rates and they have to you know their hourly rates that have to be set that have to be approved and so i think the more we can err on the side of letting those experts in, the, the more likely we will prevent the, the wrongful convictions in the future.
1: Anybody else? Well, if I don't see any more hands up, then we're gonna take a break right now. We'll come back and we're gonna hear from three additional panelists about confidential informants. Now a subject for wrongful conviction Okay. I think
4: right? yeah, Well, I, just, uh, I don't know. How about, how it's like, it I um, but they so had another yes, He, yes, he, saying, he I know the expert
8: very yeah, know.
1: It. concurred yeah. with
10: I'm going to go I saw to <laughsaji-> <copter-s> <laughs>
5: How did you
6: have a lot of cases? I think it's I it's Yeah, Yeah.
1: So okay. okay.
10: okay.
6: Yes, yes. Yes! you don't have to see
10: it, a Here's the money. Yes. 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 Yeah. Yes. Yes.
1: Yes. It's perfect timing
4: the how you I don't I
0: i <laughs> you you're
6: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <It's> <laughs> kind of and every so, uh, yeah. time uh, <laughs> <it's> <laughs> so, I'm was just trying to get the test. I was the test. So I was just trying
1: to get I
9: was just trying to I to the I it's
6: right the the system. System.
10: Just, no. Yeah. am going to i do uh, that.
9: She was
4: really Some people uh, told me, Oh, yeah.
1: I
9: guess I guess really only been to you. I Right. Like <laughs> yeah, right. mm-hmm. it's a required yeah, so <laughs> <that's okay. laughs> it's like a two like it Right. It's a two right. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> oh, <and, laughs> It's well, a It's a two a Who's the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> what? Yeah, I mean, so, yeah, yeah, we what are uh, so, supposed yeah, to, okay. girl, supposed okay. to go, and then you're supposed to go so I'm sure that yeah. I don't Yeah. But if you were in that, I will just ask you were enough. something that
1: Oh, right <laughs> well, yes, I, was, uh, I was thinking about mentioning that to you, and then I didn't think that I was talking you know, to but... oh, my buddy,
6: uh, i right. <laughs> oh, I that's
1: mean, the ground up, Mr. How are
7: you film. No. Oh, I'm oh, yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I met uh, i like, uh, Down the middle
1: house you're lying you in one of the little panel
4: houses. Yes, yes. Well, so, yes. 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 so, yeah. 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 you know where I'm, I'm 55. Yes. I yeah. 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 oh, no, I I've been a very shady yard. Right. right. And Scott Stacy, is that a He's due to He's I love it. it to the, sky. It to the, the sky. Yeah. yeah, but we're sick. We're um, closing in January. It has been a in basement, so we've got of stuff that I'm hoping is going to be gone, but the time we get there. yeah, we're very excited It's such a Do you go to the school? <laughs> no, my they're
0: all over oh, oh,
4: said that. Your partner had
0: grown We had
4: room for them. to come back to visit, but we're hoping that they they do. Because I was or so, yeah, yeah, I you it, yeah. so yeah. it was over. It was somebody no, somebody. Yeah. 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 I don't, I'm, I'm, I don't it's quite it. yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. i, I, I the yeah. yeah. so, yeah. Right after it doesn't. I didn't like it. I
1: used to I Yeah, that's you been a not uh, so. uh, seeing
10: it. You're not seeing uh, 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 oh,
7: oh, it. No, but you can say see. See. garden? No. Do you know? oh. No. Oh. Mm-hmm.
0: So, is everything
7: pretty much on um, hold? Uh, <laughs> <right. laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, well, we have a we have a 12 we a so, my
9: spouse is doing his best. I find Yeah. are the
0: interesting thing is the combination of. That's good. That's very
10: you know uh-huh. We actually been the business applied,
1: business. So. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, from um, um, <laughs> um, uh, so the the way the office, great uh, uh, so, uh, I, I, I would hope so, I, I that this, um, this administration
10: has been
1: very in all range of
10: Notices, um, in, the, uh, <coughs> in the, of
1: the 20th century. In um, <laughs> the 20th
6: century. And And
1: best and I mean, it's it's, it's and uh, the know, so, uh, the they handle, they handle it, where they handle the grass yeah. the yeah. no. no. and then they sold it to, they, they, they made a move and the Rams here to 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 the the solomon, and So you are you going to the stay
0: sports. there? I uh, no. see so
1: no,
0: so Oh, how
4: So, and I,
1: members of the Rams family
0: and the Solomon family. I don't I
1: doubt the only one who feels that
0: well, it's
4: really cool Oh, really? Oh, really? Oh. Oh. Oh, I Oh, I'm new yes.
9: yeah.
1: Yeah, I I to have
0: a I to Yeah, mean,
1: we got some kind of
0: Did it? Yeah, it was, uh, it I gave a money. Yeah. 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 yeah, but I, you can know, keep that money. No, But, not long after I gave him some money, uh, yeah. Yeah, no, they it's already got to Yeah. I mean, oh, lot of times about that. Yeah, no, you know, what about that case is that. I didn't Yeah. Mean, you know, I I you know, I not get, you know, I I <laughs> That's why they call them the <laughs> 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 I, 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 <laughs> This is what <this> <laughs> uh, <laughs> I do There you go. I'll go second. I'll <laughs> <and after. laughs> um, go <laughs> second. I'll um, go um,
1: second. I'll go 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 second. 2nd no, I'm but um, yeah. because everybody wants to be in Boston. I was hoping for a few to have a but they um, yeah. It's really nice for my job students on the screen. Yeah, yeah, he's uh, cool. yeah. in Boston, no, not
4: he's
1: not here. Oh, yeah, oh, sure. yeah, Well, he was like, uh, I, I, yeah. I, I was, he was he was, was a that, Right, a right. speaker. Right. Right. he's a, sweet he's a, sweet
4: right. he's a sweet yeah. So, yeah. so gonna, <laughs> yeah. and we people add this recording. Yeah. Right. Oh, uh, uh, these are These are can
1: Able to go for ten, yes. years year, I 10 years next year. I think it's 10 years. That year, I think it's years. I I would spend has
0: I I yeah, um schedule this. You guys are
1: using it in telephone, right? Um we're gonna resume it um in about three minutes. It's six
0: twenty and it goes to seven fifteen. Um and then questions are answered for the last fifteen minutes.
1: So we basically have um fifty-five minutes to divide um, on the watch. I think the problem so is a little shorter it doesn't matter Then we can you know ask questions and
7: things, so maybe, uh, Oh, yeah. nice.
4: one okay. Did well, you have any, any? Not you practitioners last week? I missed a comment, and I ended up getting something done for um, We did, actually.
1: Did
4: oh, um Yes, we have. Yes. we had discussions. about a number of something I Really hearing about during annihilation, <laughs>
7: relationship, <laughs> I I'm going that. you know, I I like, I'm Is it's We'd like to think that. Uh, that but uh, it really does give that you have. i that you uh, so, uh, have a
1: motion for a new trial. Uh, really it's like <laughs> right yeah. uh, yeah. hard. it's yeah, so, uh, yeah, really uh, like right yeah. hard when you with this. Yeah, very uh, uh, There are
7: okay. so many so so, uh, uh, uh,
3: I
0: Petition. <laughs>
3: David I'm
0: so glad David. that was like a. Well, <laughs> he was the summer. And i heard that case. He was
10: in that
4: And And
1: can we um, get back uh, to the program so we can remain on schedule? The last portion of our program is going to be dealing with confidential informants, a.k.a. snitches. Um, And we again have a stellar panel of wonderfully um, experienced, informative attorneys here. We have Julian Bolero, again, who needs no introduction, a very, very well-known criminal defense attorney. Um, who's practiced in both state and federal courts around here. Mary Jo Harris, of course, you may know her in her earlier iteration as a legal advisor for many years to the Boston Police Department, and now she's a partner in Morgan, Brown, and Joy. And followed, uh, uh, next to her is Ted Heinrich, who is an assistant U.S. attorney here in Boston. Again, all of them intimately familiar with the um, practices um, and use of confidential informants. We're going to start off with Julianne.
0: Good evening. Um, I remember the first time I came across the issue of uh, confidential informants very early in my career when, um, as part of discovery, it was actually in a state court case, I received a police report. It said, the CI told us this, the CI told us that, the CI told us all, all sorts of terrible things. And um, I, of course, immediately said, well, we've got to find out who this CI is. So I went to visit my client and um, went through the report with him. I'm going to us closer because it's hard to hear you. Okay. And um, m- to my surprise, much to my surprise, he had no idea who this CI was. And then, as the reports continued to come in, there was CI number one, then there was CI two, and before I knew it, we were up to CI six or seven or eight. And although we were able to figure out who some of these uh, less important informants were, he really had no idea who the principal um, witness, I'll call him, against him was in that case. And so, of course, I hit the books and. found out to my horror that uh, a defendant who was accused by someone who was designated as a CI wasn't automatically entitled to that person's identity, and it seemed completely inconsistent to me with our system of justice, which really, in most cases, goes out of its way to protect the rights of a criminal defendant, but um, I felt very strongly that I needed this information in order to properly prepare and defend the case. Now, one of the things that's important to, to recognize from the outside that there is a difference between a CI and a witness in a case. And there, uh, there are times where a confidential informant will start out confidential and ultimately take the stand and become a witness at trial, and of course, if that happens, you do, you do get that person's identity. In the federal court, you don't get it till very late in the, uh, in the uh, proceedings, and uh, sometimes you don't even get the reports. Uh, until after the witness has testified on direct examination. But if the, if the CI ultimately becomes a witness, um, you get that information. So we're really talking about cases where the CI doesn't become a witness and remains confidential, or where the effort is to, to keep that uh, person's identity confidential. Um, the identity of confidential informants is actually protected by a privilege. It's called the informer's privilege. And it's a privilege that belongs to the government, as opposed to the to to the informant himself. It's the government's within the government's purview to assert the privilege or not assert the privilege and reveal the identity of the informant. The purpose of the privilege is to further and protect the public interest in effective law enforcement. So, what does that mean? That means that law enforcement relies very heavily on. Um, what um, Judge Giles called snitches. We call them rats. Um, (laughs) But uh, they vary heavily on on individuals who are willing to speak to them on the condition that their identity is not revealed and who are routinely out in the streets, sometimes committing crimes, sometimes petty crimes, sometimes not-so-petty crimes, um, but have a relationship with law enforcement that lets law enforcement get inside uh, what's going on in the street, and they become a very valuable law enforcement tool. So the privilege was really created um, uh, to protect that valuable law enforcement tool. And the privilege extends um, not only to the, the actual identity of the informant, the informant's name, but to any information that might result to result in the disclosure of the informant's identity. I can give you an example of that in the, the Lamoni case that we, um, we just tried a year or so ago um, where uh, the, the government had given us uh, FBI reports. They call them 302s, but they were reports that were heavily redacted not only for the informant's identity but for things like file names and numbers and uh, uh, internal designations or designations internal to the FBI. And um, one of the arguments we made in that case was uh, was at least give us the file numbers because if, if, we, if you give us the file numbers and we have 20 reports, we can, we can at least see if five of these reports go with one file number and, you know, four of them go with another file number and at least group them together and maybe try to make some sense of this and perhaps at least see on how many occasions um, this individual who's not identified Gave you information, resulting in the creation of a report, and their response was, "Oh no, we don't. We don't give out file numbers because, you know, you you, you get to know our file numbers pretty good in our system. You could you could probably use that to try to figure out who this informant, you know, 40 years ago gave information, is or was. Um, we we couldn't." Um, <coughs> you know they they refused to tell us whether the informants were dead or alive because we might be able to figure out who they were if they were dead, and they might still have living family in the area who needed to be protected the The protection of the informant is also one of the purposes obviously behind the privilege so who b- bears the burden of um, demonstrating that uh, the informant's identity is needed when, when the identity is, is sought. And that, that's a burden that very clearly falls on the um, party who is seeking the disclosure of the identity. Um, the government doesn't have the burden of showing that um, their informant needs to be protected. Uh, in a criminal case, a defendant, and in a civil case where you're attempting to correct a wrongful conviction, the plaintiff has the burden of demonstrating that the, um, the information is necessary. Um, and as I said, the, the First Circuit has determined that this is a very heavy burden. They set the, they set the bar quite high and uh, require that the um, party seeking disclosure um, demonstrate that knowledge of the identity of the informant is vital, vital, to the proper presentation and preparation of the case. If you have any other means to prepare your case or to obtain the information, short of getting either the identity of the informant or such disclosure that would lead to his identity, then you just don't get it, period, end of story. Um, the, the, case laws, the case law talks about a balancing test this is something that was first discussed by the United States Supreme Court back in the 50s in uh, the Rovario case and you know has been followed all along and is followed in this circuit. But really, at the end of the day, unless the defendant or the party-seeking disclosure can demonstrate that they absolutely need this information, it's vital, and the only way they can get it, only way they can get it is if they have the identity of the informant, um, then they don't get it. And think about um, how difficult that showing is when you're trying to prepare a case and um, trying to demonstrate to a court that I actually need the name of this person, I don't know who the person is, I do know what the person said, but attempting to demonstrate to the court when you know what the person said that the person's identity is actually vital to your case is a very difficult thing to do, especially earlier in the case when you're when you're trying to bring a motion to suppress evidence that you you contend was unlawfully seized. And these suppression issues are often uh, often what what leads to wrongful convictions. Evidence is admitted at trial that shouldn't have been admitted, that should have been su- suppressed, and what we find some 10, 15, 20, 30 years later is that if the ad- identity of the informant had been disclosed in, and disclosed to the court, then um, the evidence would not have been admitted and the defendant would not have been convicted and would not have served a sentence for a wrongful conviction um, so the the identity of informants at suppression hearings where um, the court sets the bar even higher than it does at the trial um, at the time of trial um, it becomes very important in these wrongful conviction cases um, the 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 difficulty of obtaining the informant's identity uh, um, often requires that you get somewhat creative in crafting a solution that um, you hope you can sell to a judge to get to get some information about the informant. The first the first step is of course asking the judge to take a look at the information in in camera review. Because often what the government does in these cases, and I think Mary Jo is going to talk a little bit about policy, but if you just look at, at the FBI's policy as an example, uh, the FBI has a policy that they don't, under any circumstances, they don't care what the case is, who the, who the defendant is, uh, what the issue is. They just take a position against disclosure of their informant's identity. And they do that to send a message to their informants that they will, you know, draw the line in the sand. They will not cross it. Your identity will be protected. And the problem with that is that it's not a fact-specific policy. And every individual who is seeking disclosure of the the identity of an informant, um, regardless of the circumstances, is just Mm going to run up against this non-fact-specific policy. So um, one of the strategies to try to use is to see if you can get the judge to Uh, look at the informant information in camera have the government file it under seal the judge look at it in camera um, give the judge a a very specific context in which he or she is to review the information and hope that the court will agree with you that the information is absolutely necessary Um, another strategy that that sometimes works is to see if you can get a stipulation from the government in lieu of the identity of the the informant Um, for example, one of the stipulations in, in the Lamoni case that the government was prepared to enter into, we weren't prepared to accept it, but they were prepared to They offered it. Offer it. Um, was a stipulation that the, the informant was uh, a, a reliable informant. Um, <laughs> and you
4: wouldn't well, accept that? Well, we wouldn't accept I'm that. I'm shocked.
0: I'm shocked. Uh, we wouldn't Drowny. accept that. We wanted a stipulation that the informant was a reliable informant who had provided reliable information in the past and who the agents actually believed, and um, that they acted on that belief and the reliability of the informant. Of course, that was an impossible stipulation for the government to enter into in that case. So um, we ended up bringing it to the judge, and she ended up reviewing about 7,000 pages of documents in camera. and I think probably about the 18th day of trial, we got one page of information uh, on an informant whose name had already been disclosed in Howie Carr's website or something. <laughs> yeah. um, that's another that's another issue in these cases, is that the disclosure issue often comes up when defendants argue, oh, everyone knows who this informant is, and uh, this is ridiculous, we just can't say it. and Uh, or this informant hasn't hasn't tried to keep his his identity secret. And really the way the court looks at it is that unless the informant voluntarily disclosed his or her identity, then the informant is not deemed to have waived the government's privilege. Remember, it's the government's privilege, but sometimes uh, um, the government will accidentally disclose information. They might forget to redact it, the, the name or Portion of it, or they give you something that allows you to, to sort it out, and uh, you figure out who the informant is. But um, often in those cases, what they do is they bring in either bring in the you know an affidavit by the informant saying I didn't want my identity disclosed, or an affidavit by an agent saying I talked to the informant and he or she told me to want the identity their identity disclosed and. And that usually shuts the door on it at that point. So even though you might have the information, there's nothing you can do with it. You can't use it in any way um, to assist you in your case. So that's that's the basic outline of it. Um, the bottom line is that it is a balancing test, but it's a very heavily weighed against the party seeking disclosure. Um, very heavily weighed in favor of the government and protecting the informant's identity and the privilege. It is a fact-based analysis. And when you're faced with a situation where, you know, much of the evidence or you think the, the vital evidence in your case comes from an informant, you just need to keep going back at it time and time again as you develop more and more information. Keep bringing the motion back before the judge. Offer some creative solutions. Half a loaf is better than no loaf at all. See if you can get a stipulation as to the informant's reliability. And, uh, and try to deal with it that way because it's a very difficult issue to encounter in these cases. Hi, Joe.
4: Thanks. Hi. Um, I, uh, to begin, I, I don't do criminal work, so I am here really just to talk about the, the policy issues that we addressed when I was at the Boston Police Department uh, having to do with confidential informants and their um, approach to it uh, I, I think was really framed by a case where a police officer was shot and killed when they were uh, executing a search warrant. The warrant had been obtained on the basis of an affidavit provided by uh, one of the drug c- control detectives that said, having met with a confidential informant, he has told me thus and such about the, the guns, the drugs, et cetera, that would be found in this apartment. And then when the, uh, uh, the accused shooter of the police officer was preparing for trial, he sought information about this confidential informant, and uh, as it turned out, there was no confidential informant, and the affidavit was false and had been knowingly created uh, and knowingly presented as the basis for this search warrant. Um, that uh, suspected murderer was not prosecuted because, obviously, there had been no probable cause to begin this To to enter into the search warrant and those people who were prepared to testify that this arrest of this individual um, was a justified arrest for the people who had conspired to to provide this perjured testimony. Those officers who were involved in the conspiracy were um, were prosecuted and were convicted of perjury. Um, So I think it underscores, at least for institutions, that when you do something in secret and you keep it secret from everybody, the chances for corruption are very fertile. And so it's much, you know, it sort of highlights the importance in having administrative controls, as Julianne's case sort of amply demonstrates. So I've given you some model policies, but basically for the police agencies, what they look to in these these types of situations, and and I should add as a caveat, I I don't do prosecutions or defense work, but I do do civil rights defense work, and for just plain old risk management purposes, you know, one of, you know, a wrongful conviction can cripple a a police agency, and certainly the the human cost is an unbearable one any way that you look at it. But when you're working working with police supervisors and you're dealing with issues having to do with confidential informants, you have to recognize, I think, from the beginning, that if you have confidential informants, they have a motive for working with police, and it's that they want money, they want revenge, they want to put the competition out of business, they're afraid of somebody or something, they're looking for leniency from the criminal justice system, or in the occasional case, you have just a, a good doobie who's decided to do the right thing. And when you're working with confidential informants, what we stressed uh, during trainings is that basically in most instances you're not working with, with the Sisters of Charity, you're, you're working with people who are engaged in a criminal enterprise because if they aren't, they're not going to have very much information that's going to be worthwhile. So with those sort of, uh, you know, understanding who it is that your witness is likely to be, you have to identify what the problems are going to be working with this kind of an individual. Um, you have to have questions about the veracity, about whether they're informing for you and on you to somebody else, uh, whether they're interested in, in ripping off either your buy money or your planted drugs, whatever it is that you're using in the, in the undercover enterprise, because these basically are, are sorts of undercover cases, or whether they're looking to be able to establish a relationship where they actually turn the tables on their their police handler and can get them into a compromising position. Because of these kinds of risks, the department, rather than an officer, should be in charge of informants. Uh, it used to be prior to the the murder of, of Detective Sherman Griffiths that if you were an officer and you established a relationship with a cooperating confidential informant, you, the officer, had that relationship and you maintained it, and you didn't share it with anybody. And the reasons given were because there's risks to safety, you don't trust anybody else in the in the department, nobody's as good as you are in maintaining the confidentiality of your informant, and it would be a safety risk if that person were to be identified. Um, those are not good reasons to keep confidential informants outside of review by supervising officers. The supervising officer has to make sure that he's not dealing with a rogue officer. He has to ensure that there are no mental health issues with the CI or any kind of codependency created between the CI and the officer who's working him. Um, And there needs to be documentation. Uh, When I have encountered Ted in my prior life, it was usually in the context of a request for Giglio or Brady information, which, uh, as I'm sure you're aware, is uh, disclosing any information that, or any promises, rewards, or inducements that may have, oh, I'm sorry, I'm just, I'm I'm backtracking on myself, excuse me. Um, There is an obligation on the part of officers to disclose to prosecutors any promises, rewards, or inducements that they may have given to an uh, A witness who may be testifying. And from the point of view of of my office, sort of answering the questions that we would get from federal prosecutors or from state prosecutors, there needed to be some sort of a database that was reliable that you could go to and identify whether, in fact, someone had been paid or otherwise promised something that would (coughs) induce them to provide information. And uh, Bill White and I tried a, a case last year where one of the big issues a wrongful conviction civil case where one of the big issues was whether or not certain witnesses had been induced to testify falsely because they believed or uh, were told that they would either be given money or consideration in pending cases um, and just as a, a practical matter and I excuse my excuse excuse me for jumping around. Uh, when you are defending cases down the road, you want to be able to demonstrate everything that a witness was given, and you want to uh, be able to show the documentation that shows that a witness was handled properly so that you can rebut or defend against accusations that there were secret deals made. Uh, And so, of course, in order to do this, you have to have (coughs) records that are kept and are discoverable um, after the need for the secrecy has has disappeared. And that... um, as Julianne said, is a fact-specific inquiry, but if there isn't a system in place, uh, you're really, as an agency, going to be in a very vulnerable position. Um, The sorts of things that are maintained in these cases, I I would suggest to an agency that they should keep not only informants who are reliable, but once you find out that an informant is not reliable, there should be a record of that kept as well Uh, because we found that there are people who kind of shop themselves around uh, looking... You know, They know somebody in Roxbury, but they may not be known to somebody working in Dorchester or or vice versa. Uh, So part of what an agency really should maintain is, uh, you know, sort of the the full biographical information, including fingerprints and photographs of whoever the CI is. And, you know, we had and still have, you know, police personnel who think that that's absolutely outrageous. But uh, you need to have the biographical information. um, The... The IACP, which is a a, a sort of a police agency think tank, recommends that there's a formal agreement that's entered into with informants outlining exactly what they're going to be promised and exactly what they are not uh, entitled to believe or or believe that they were promised. Um, You... They should be debriefed every time information is given and that debriefing should be documented and maintained in their master file, as well as a list of all of the cases, prosecuted or not, where they've actually performed services. And again, you know, if, if someone has been found to be unreliable, that should be documented as well. Um, and finally, there in order to make sure that, that these policies actually are not just existing on paper. It's recommended that there's an audit performed annually or biannually to make sure that this kind of information is captured and maintained um, and actually used as opposed to just existing in a book somewhere. So uh, with those, those are are my comments just from the agency perspective. Let Ted speak. Thank you.
10: Um, I'm going to broaden the discussion a a little bit. But First, I, I just couldn't help but comment. I think part of the reason... The one agent, the one agent or one officer, one CI kind of rule or practice. Uh, part of the reason I think that that is diminishing is because police offices, uh, police departments in particular, have realized the, the value of the intelligence and actually acting on the intelligence in an organizational way, rather than having the perverse incentives of having a single officer be totally in control of that information and just sort of dribble it out when it uh, benefits him or her uh, in a particular case. Um, and I, I, mean, I think that that will evolve, but uh, I think that's one of the reasons that some of the, um, not only the, I mean Boston has certainly helped break down <laughs> in a terrible way, Boston has helped break down some of the uh, prior bad practices uh, 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 with informants. But I want to uh, broaden it a little bit beyond confidential informants to informants generally. And I, I want to do that with a, with a what I hope will be a quick story. On the, um, on the evening of August 11th, 1995, uh, two men on a motorcycle approached six men on Nelson Street in Boston. The passenger on the bike jumped off, pulled out a gun, and opened fire at close range, killing one of the men and injuring two. Four of the five survivors uh, identified Marlon Pasley as the shooter and he said he was wearing a green net shirt at the time of the shooting. They also described that two weeks earlier they had had an altercation with Mr. Pasley and some of his friends at a nightclub, not a nightclub, and since that time, every time Pasley had seen them, he had made a shooting motion at them like he was going to get them back. Um... Pasley was, uh, uh... arrested four days after the murder, based on those eyewitness identifications, and the police pursuant to a search warrant found a green net mesh shirt in his house, which had a, uh, a small blood stain on it uh, that did not allow for any DNA testing. Seems like a pretty good case. In fact, it was a pretty good case. Pasley put on an alibi defense, but he was convicted of first-degree murder at trial and sentenced to life imprisonment. On February 9, 1999, three and a half years after the murder, the Supreme Judicial Court rejected his appeal and affirmed his conviction and sentencing. So at that point, it appeared that Marlon Pasley would spend the rest of his life in jail for uh, first-degree murder. I had absolutely no involvement with that case at that point in time. I was a a federal prosecutor. I uh, had been doing gun and drug and gang cases. I liked the work. Uh, The trial work was good. But the best thing about the work was using the despised uh, mandatory minimum and draconian federal sentencing guideline penalties to extract information from criminal defendants because that meant I got to talk to uh, a lot of different people with a lot of interesting stories. And I learned a lot, I talked to, uh, I mean, I, I have talked to literally 200 criminal defendants, usually uh, gang, young gang members, uh, and talking to them about their, their lives, their, you know, how they you know, conduct drive-by shootings as if it were a Friday night football game. When they have a you know a big score, you know how they go back and you know go back to a, a, a house and, and whoop it up. So it's very very interesting work, and I, I recommend it uh, to anybody. And I see. I got to say it's the only reason that I I, I have to uh, mourn the passing of the uh, mandatory sentencing guidelines in favor of the advisory sentencing guidelines now in place in federal court. But at that point in time. Uh, uh, in March of 1999, we were getting ready to indict a guy named Eddie Mills. And Eddie Mills was the head of a, a big drug trafficking organization. He was driving a lot of fancy cars. Uh, he And we indicted him and uh, eight associates on drug, uh, gun, and money laundering charges. And uh, so I didn't you know He was, and he actually, on, uh, many of you may know Joe Savage. Joe Savage was representing him not as retained counsel, but he had picked him up on a CJA appointment, which I found interesting. And Joe's a, a very hard-nosed litigators, and Eddie Mills was at the top of the pyramid, and we try never to use big fish to go after little fish. Well, we try never, and I'm sure you all have your own stories where prosecutor's offices have done just that. Um, but nevertheless, it did not occur to me that Eddie Mills would be uh, uh, wanting to cooperate. Yet yeah, one of the uh, uh, police detectives, Boston police detectives who I was working with before um, we indicted said, uh, now, I think Eddie will want to cooperate. We're not going to let him cooperate, are we, because he viewed Eddie as you know, the worst of the worst. I said, I, I really don't think you have to worry about that. So. I was surprised two weeks later when Joe Savage came to me, without telling me the information that Eddie had, and said he wants to cooperate. And I said, Joe, uh, you understand he's at the top of the pyramid, and uh, I don't. Know, I mean, I don't. I'm not sure what we'd be able to do with him. And Joe just kind of looked at me and said, Well, I, I think you will be interested in this. So. You know, I didn't have great prospects for it, but because I knew he was at the top of the organization, and because I knew, uh, or at least believed strongly, that he was involved in at least two unsolved homicides, I was really looking forward to this interview. You know, you go to a lot of interviews with, with drug defendants, and they'll tell I got drugs from him, and then I got drugs from him, and I haven't been dealing that long, or they're minimized, or they're, they'll just talk about drugs. and you know, I mean, let's be honest. I want to hear about the shootings. I want to hear about the homicides. I want to hear about the good stuff. So, I was looking forward to this when my ears were perked up. And Eddie came in, and uh, you can tell usually in the first two or three minutes whether this is going to be a productive interview or not. Or whether, you know, the guy's saying, basically, you know, somebody told me X and such, but I never handled a gun. And Eddie just laid it right out on the and he told us about a homicide that involved uh, Stephen Seeley, who was in the presence of uh, uh, the singer Bobby Brown when he was killed in Whitney Houston's Bentley outside the Baritz. Um, what one, one of my favorite clients. Exactly. <laughs> one that, um, uh, one that we, we knew about and that he was able to fill in uh, many of, of the pieces. He told us about another homicide that we suspected their involvement in because there had been an ongoing beef between uh, Eddie's group and a rival group, and the uh, the victim was a member of that rival group, and it all kind of fit together. And he told us about this third one, and nobody really kind of knew anything about it. And uh, we, he told us about it, and we said, well, you know, we we'll need to check with Homicide on this to follow up more on it. Can you tell us a little bit about more about it? And I said, well, where where did it happen? I uh, said, well, that we drove up on Nelson Street. Ooh, you drove up. Uh, I Well, I was driving. A, I was riding a motorcycle, and John Tibbs was on the back, and John Tibbs popped off the motorcycle and started shooting at these guys. It was uh, in retaliation for a uh, shooting that they'd done on my buddy Day Day uh, uh, several hours earlier. Okay, yeah. so that kind of got the, the date right. Do you know who the uh, victim was? No, I don't know who the victim was because I think we shot the wrong people. (laughs) Oh. Hmm. All right, well. And I didn't know where Nelson Street was. I didn't know how, you know, the high crime area was. So he said, was there anything else about it that you can tell us? He said, oh, yeah. Uh, The wrong guy got convicted for it. (laughs) (laughs) I said, what? He said, well, somebody got convicted for it said, so. <laughs> oh. So, immediately after, and I, I remember this clearly, immediately after the, the proctor session, I went back to my office and put in whatever search terms I could think of, including Nelson Street, into the computer to the mass database at Upsprings United States versus Basley. And... I'm sorry, Commonwealth versus uh, Pasley, And I... I read this opinion, and the first part of it sounded very good, like they had a very strong case. And then I read the alibi, and I read the closing, the prosecutor's closing, trying to rebut the alibi. And I realized, I, it seems to me that we have something here. And uh, we got in touch with the Boston Police Homicide Unit. We got in touch with the Suffolk DA's office, and. Um, one of the, one of the points, I mean, first of all, this, uh, um, one of the points which I'll come back to, uh, was, one of the things that was critical for us right away was, I mean, let's face it, Eddie Mills was a criminal. He was facing a 30-year-to-life sentence. He was cooperating with us only because he wanted to save his own skin. And, uh, no one, uh, Prosecutor, not a jury, not a judge would believe Eddie Mills unless we were able to corroborate his testimony. And we were enormously fortunate, but we had to move quickly because, as it turned out, Eddie was being Eddie was incarcerated federally, being held federally, and so was John Tibbs. And it turned out, as what would have it, that John Tibbs was being held on other charges. So, as far as this murder was concerned, uh, he did not have the right to counsel that we could violate by having Eddie talk to him and tape recording our conversations. In order to record conversations in a prison, you not only have to get the uh, approval of the pr- prison officials involved, but for the Department of Justice, when they're in marshal's custody, we have to get all kinds of approval. Um, but we managed uh, to, to work back through the system, got the approval. Uh, FBI and Boston police homicide detectives worked closely with the prison officials and were able to wire Eddie up in prison. And then he engaged in some conversations uh, with Mr. Tibbs uh, that ultimately uh, induced him to uh, plead guilty to uh, two of the three homicides with which he is charged. He's now serving a 27-year sentence. Um, Shortly after the the tapes uh, were made, uh, the Commonwealth uh, filed a motion to release Mr. Pasley and ultimately um, uh, dismiss the charges. Um, so I tell that story for a couple of reasons. Uh, one reason is because it, I, when we, when the defense bar meets uh, and, and and they talk about confidential informants and snitches, um, rats. I think it's rats. Exactly. Um, I, you, Exactly. Know, I think it's usually to denigrate them. Uh, I, I do think they, there is a, another side to the coin. Um, they can. Uh, exonerate uh, people; they can be used for good in the, in the criminal justice system. Um, the second reason is that because informants, I think, generate a lot of uh, controversy. It's it is a very good idea, both from the prosecutor's perspective and from the defense perspective, to be as expert as possible uh, in terms of dealing with. Confidential informants both preparing them and preparing your case as a prosecutor and piercing that case and testing that case as a defense lawyer and there's really two things I wanted to say about that one to me and again I've been doing this for almost a month for too long but for almost 20 years and the the best single piece of the best single uh, thing that I can uh, have ever Read on the subject is by a man named Stephen Trott. and Stephen Trot uh, was a Reagan appointee uh, to the Ninth Circuit. Uh, he's still on the Ninth Circuit. If you go into Google and you put in Stephen with a P H, and Trot T R O T T, uh, and informant. You event, um, uh, there is on the web. I thought it was just the internal justice, which is why I didn't include our fine materials here. Um, but you can uh, go out and get uh, his uh, primer primer on um, the use of uh, uh, informants as witnesses, and it's it's enormously helpful. It has some great checklists. It had, it is a, it had a fertile area for defense counsel to to look to uh, if you want to attack. Uh, a cooperating witness, has some great uh, horror stories about treacherous uh, CIs who double-crossed uh, uh, with their government, uh, their inept government handlers, uh, or seemingly, you know, not so inept government handlers, just um, they've been able to, uh, to double-cross them. Um, a number of the, the things you know, he says are, are common sense, but he illustrates them with uh, great examples. The overriding uh, message... Oh, the other thing you'll find if you Google Stephen Trott is, it turns out that he was an original member of the Highwaymen, and he still plays with the uh, Highwaymen. He left the Highwaymen in 1964 to go to Harvard Law School, uh, but now he's back reunited with them, and he plays sometimes at the Guthrie Center, so if you want to catch Judge Trott on the mandolin, um, uh, he's sometimes around. Uh, but. The other the, the, the overriding point of that is, and the and the point that's always driven home to me is when I use a criminal witness uh, in a prosecution, the main thing that I try to do is try to corroborate everything he tells me, or as much as he tells me as I can possibly uh, corroborate. And frankly, uh, you know I, I've seen this work in jury cases where I've you know got real corroboration on a shooting and I have a criminal witness testify in the criminal witnesses is really only filling in the, the motive for the testimony, which is sometimes a critical element in a federal prosecution, uh, then it, it, it turns out to be very effective when you're relying on the criminal witness alone uh, just for uh, uh, a, a conviction. It generally doesn't work out too well. Um, but the, So the point of that is just corroborate, corroborate, corroborate. And I, I think it's helpful for defense counsel. I was thinking about this and thinking why they asked me to speak to this. What what possible guidance could I have for defense counsel? And uh, it it did strike me that um, if you've got a defendant who is claiming to be innocent, and you are interviewing them at, you know, in, in confidence, and not having to disclose anything at all. I, I do second uh, Mike Fabry's suggestion that, again, I, my, prosecutors don't want to send an innocent person to jail. Prosecutors do, however, distrust a uh, the straight-out story of a uh, criminal defendant who's facing a long sentence uh, against whom they have substantial evidence, certainly enough evidence to indict and what they believe is evidence uh, to convict. Um, so... I, I've had defense lawyers come to me sometimes and say, you know, my either, you know, my client says X and such, but uh, you know, I don't know if I don't know if that's true or not. Or they'll bring the client in to tell a story and they'll say something like, Well, you know, if he wants to come in and tell that story, that's up to him. And I suppose that raises the question whether I mean, when you report somebody for infecting the systems and you view that. Um, but The point, I guess, I was trying to make is that I think you want to look at trust Memo, think how a prosecutor thinks sometimes, and subject your client's story to those same rules and try to corroborate everything that he's telling you. Then, when you come to the prosecutor, you are not only presenting a story, but you're presenting a compelling story with compelling evidence. Obviously, you've got to judge whether you best do that at trial or whether you best do that to the prosecutors. Uh, And part of your judgment is gonna be based on the nature of the prosecutor's office and the nature of the prosecutor that you're dealing with. Um, But frankly, most of the prosecutors in my office, most of the prosecutors I've had the pleasure of working with in the state's attorney's office, um, will be interested to hear uh, what it is, um, what you're saying and, and, and try to do it.
4: What happened to Eddie. Eddie? Eddie oh that's
10: fascinating. That's in a better story sometimes. Um, <laughs> Eddie um, was before Judge Young. And uh, <laughs> 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 and Judge Young is uh, the um, har- harshest censor in federal court I think Charlie would I think Randy no, I mean, there's, that. there's little doubt about that. So we had offered uh, Eddie a deal in which he um, basically pleaded to something that was capped at 10 years, we'd recommend 10 years, and it would be sort of a 10-year deal. And uh, But he had the option of taking a, a, a plea to a 20-year crime and we'd recommend something and the judge could go lower. And he's like, ah, which should I take? I don't know which I should take. <laughs> so he took the 20-year deal. we recommended 10, and Judge Young gave him 18.
6: <laughs>
10: and uh, the marshals took him back into the lockup, and I just heard from the other side of the wall, <laughs> and he was just uh, it was awful. So he appealed his sentence, and, and Joe made some very creative arguments. And initially, the First Circuit denied it. And then they took back their decision and granted it because they said Judge Young had, in giving this 18-year sentence, the way he explained it was somehow arguably inappropriate. So Judge Young being Judge Young, when the First Circuit gets the case, uh, reverses the case, he doesn't take the case back. He wants nothing more to do with it. So it went back into the draw. And Eddie got Judge Lindsay. And Eddie came up for resentencing before Judge Lindsay, and we again recommended 10 years. And Judge Lindsay gave him six, which amounted to time served almost. And Eddie got a, get out of jail for your car, And he's doing quite well now. So, he's uh, in a neighborhood near you. <laughs> Not exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, story
1: how about questions
3: yes certainly. Uh,
6: I found Mary Jo's uh, talk about working through handling informants with the Boston police really uh, fascinating um, do you have a sense that the department really has a handle on uh, the management of informants, and that it's not a lot of nice paperwork and organizational charts, but the reality is more like the former life.
4: You're putting me right on the spot. Um, I still represent the Boston Police Department, although I'm in private practice. So it is—it is my understanding that at least when I was in-house and working with people there, that that was the intent and that was absolutely the motivation behind it. Um, that folks were looking at it as a simply unacceptable risk not to have tight controls. So I am accepting their goodwill and good faith in that. I
10: would say, from what I see, it's better. Um, the Boston Police is a big uh, organization and it got a lot of different uh, units, and I'm sure that, as in any big bureaucracy and any big organization, practices vary from. Unit to unit, and perhaps even individual to individual, but they are—they are, are getting better. They are much better at documenting uh,
1: their performance. Maybe the problems have just migrated elsewhere. I think, Mary Jo, you were alluding to the famous Carlos Luna case, um, and apropos of what we were talking about before about whether judges should be approving um, expense requests from defense counsel. Imagine my surprise. And please note the irony that a couple of years ago I was presented with a bill from a CPCS attorney for services rendered as a private investigator by none other than Carlos Luna. I will say nothing more. But he was working as a private, a man who was charged with and convicted of, pled out to perjury, was being used by CPCS as a private investigator, and I was being asked to approve funds for Carlos Luna through CPCS.
3: Well,
6: let's,
1: I mean, it was a bar advocate, I think, CPCS. Um, it, ultimately, it's CPCS, but it might have been a bar advocate.
6: I guess the other question is uh, on the informant business, probably to Ted. Do you have a sense of how the outlying police department's uh, Manage their performance. Uh, I
10: I don't I, I um I don't uh, as as well because I've worked so uh, nearly exclusively with, with the Boston Police Department. Um, uh, they vary. I, I can't say with respect to the the the, uh, the federal guidelines um, because of the recent unpleasantness in Boston. Um, with <laughs> with the uh, Connelly-Bolger um, you know, matters, that they, I mean, the guidelines have changed and not only in Boston, nationally they've changed for the FBI. And um, one of the upshots of the guidelines are that there's no longer any, supposed to be any distinction between a confidential informant and a cooperating witness. So they're supposed to treat all, and they've got a great FBI acronym, some kind of human source thing, uh, so that you, it objectifies it. But, supposed to treat them all uh, the same, uh, and there's supposed to be more consistent oversight by the federal prosecuting, federal prosecutor's office. Um, so, uh, for what that's worth, uh, the, the the FBI is not sort of operating on, on a, with, with as much autonomy as it used to operate.
1: Any other questions?
0: Julianne, What do you have in your party? We'll see. I never count my chickens.
1: (laughs) Anybody? Well, I want to thank all the panelists today, our last three,
4: um, and all the other panelists who appeared today for this wonderful program.